get to do this thanks to our fans, you know, and that we can keep doing this, you know, especially like I say, me and Dan have got COVID at the moment. If it wasn't for Patreon, we just there would have been no show this week. Do you know what I mean? Mm. But because we can do it from home because of Patreon. In our gym jams. In our gym jams, you know, in my hot cook, cup of cocoa, we're still here doing it. Um, so, yeah, eternally grateful for it. Yeah, so um, if you'd like to join us on Patreon, of course, then not only do you get the uh, the uh, the bonus podcast each month as well, if you're a gold member or above, you get the usual podcast early most weeks, you get it ad-free. There's around, you know, about 50 minutes of extra content in most episodes recently for our patrons. And also you get invited to the monthly patrons hangouts that we are going to be doing another one of in the next couple of weeks as well, where we all just get together, a bit like, you know, a virtual users group, you get invited to that every month. And, of course, you get the satisfaction of knowing that you're a big part of this show, and it's thanks to you that we can continue to bring it out each and every Friday. So you will get a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. And a big thank you to our latest patrons. Thank you so much to Mark Brooks, Joe Pentoni, Chris McLeod, and James Bentley, who all backed us on Patreon. And if you'd like to do the same, you'll find it on our website at theretrohour.com. And this is a cool little video that um, you linked up, Joe. Uh, this is, for people that have got a, uh, a jailbroken PlayStation 4, this is a video from a guy called uh, Mr. Mario 2011, where actually, it's around a 15-minute video, where he details how you can play Sega Saturn games on your jailbroken PS4. Now, I've got to admit... I haven't been brave enough to jailbreak my PS4, but watching this, I am quite tempted. I can't say I've jailbroken or modded any of my consoles or anything like that. I tend, tend to leave that to you guys, and Ravi usually has a good grasp on these things. But how how, how does this work? Because obviously the Sega Saturn is usually like a mess to kind of like emulate and stuff like that. Well, this is a new emulator that's called um, Saturn SPKG. Mm-hmm. Now, this is actually from a guy who um, he made a PlayStation 2 emulator that you can run on the, uh, the jailbroken PlayStation as well. Uh, but what it does, it's a pretty cool video. It kind of walks you through the process. What you need to do is um, you actually get your Sega Saturn CD. Okay. And you put that into your PC, you rip it as an image on your computer, right. and then there's a program that actually turns it into um, a file called an SPKG file, which are the files that the PlayStation plays. Right. So what it means is, it's kind of like, you know, if you download a game off um, something like GOG, good old games, and it kind of bakes the emulator into the file? Yeah. So what you get is you get a file that you can put on a USB stick, should that any jailbroken PlayStation 4, and then it runs like a PlayStation 4 program, so it launches the emulator and the game, the game image that you've baked into this file. So they actually appear on your, um, your PlayStation 4 dashboard when you turn it on. So there's a couple of examples that he's got running in here. Um, the main one he plays with is Clockwork Knight, which appears to run really well. Mm. And he says, you know, at the moment, it's obviously quite new. And uh, certain games run okay in there. He's got, you know, um, Daytona running as well. There's a few kind of texture popping and stuff like that. So certain games do work better than others. At the moment, there's only really, a, I'd say, a handful of games that are actually working flawlessly on there. It's, it's hard um, to emulate the Saturn. You know, yeah, uh, that's the thing, yeah. Yeah, with a lot of systems, um, there's, there's always a few errors and stuff when you're emulating the Saturn. It's, 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 it's a tough system to do. And uh, I guess it's because of the processors and, and the, the kind of way that it was set up. Um, but looking at the, the, the way that jailbreaking done on the um, PS4 is... Uh, I, I, I don't know if you can do the PS5 yet. I'm sure someone will be able to at one point, but it seems to be all like kind of relevant to the firmware version that you've got and stuff like that. Yeah. But uh, a lot of it's just soft modding. 
and just, uh, you know, using the USB stick. So you'd get that done and then you'd put this on. Yeah, so PlayStation 2 emulator they've got on there actually, you know, appears to run quite a lot of stuff. You know, I, I don't want to say flawlessly, but very, very good compatibility. And this is saying, obviously, like you said, it's a more complicated system. Um, and it's early as well. I mean, you know, this has only been around about a month by the looks of it. So um, it, it does mean that there are only a few games that kind of work perfectly. A lot of them have got some small issues. Some of them, you know, have got, like, major issues that don't work at all. So it's early days, but I think the bit in this video that I love is just watching him kind of scrolling through his dashboard there on his PS4, and he's got stuff in there like Daytona USA, and he's got Clockwork Night, and, uh, you know, just having those Saturn games launchable just by clicking it, and actually you go on there. And the, the stuff in there that you'd expect from an emulator, there's like a rewind function, and you can do save states and stuff as well, which, you know, I think really adds a lot to the original games. I, I need to look into this, like you know, because there's a lot of PS4s around, and I reckon it could be quite a good emulation powerhouse, and something nice that you could just have you know, connected to your TV and stuff. Yeah, pretty cool that, uh, you know, people are doing this, and uh, I, I may have to investigate, <laughs> see what I can do on it. That's the thing about Sony, they generally, I mean, obviously, I imagine if you're, you know, putting out jailbreaks for the PS5, they're going to jump on your case pretty quickly and get that, you know, video taken down, I guess. But with the PlayStation 4, they generally tend to, when a new generation comes out, kind of leave the last generation behind pretty quickly. So even though the PS4 is like supported at the moment and stuff, there are a lot of guys that can see online about how to jailbreak it, and none of them have been like, you know, hit with strikes or anything, whereas the PS5 ones do. So it kind of seems like, you know, the PlayStation 3, that is so easy to mod now. Yeah. You literally, you go to a website and you can mod it. So it's nothing that's kind of actively patched or anything since the Xbox came out there when a new system's been released. So it kind of looks like, you know, maybe they're going to kind of let the PlayStation 4 kind of you know, fall into the hands of the modders and crackers and stuff and uh, just leave them to get on with stuff like this, which would be cool. I've got to say that my PlayStation 4 is pretty much exclusively a VR machine. <laughs> Not that I use it. Uh, my PlayStation 4 is exclusively a Bloodborne machine. That is literally like the only game I play on. Does this make me too retro that I've never even played a PS3? Yeah, that's pretty retro. That is pretty retro. That's pretty retro. I've played the Switch. I've got my PS3 set up in here, and actually that was one thing we were chatting about our last Patriots Hangout, wasn't it, you know, how easy that system is to crack now. So I'm a bit like you, Joe. I'm always a bit nervous about modding systems, particularly ones that I still kind of play, so I figure, you know, that is a link to my main PSN account. Yeah. And I just think, oh, so you're going to see it, they're going to, you know, bat it. It's, 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 it's not even about that for me. It's about breaking it. Like, you yeah. know, just not trusting myself. To be able to do it, you know, people are always like, oh, yeah, this is easy or that's that easy, you know, even when it comes to, like, DIY, but I'm just, I'm a clumsy guy, you know, <laughs> I would definitely do something wrong at some point, but like you say on our Patreon Hangout, you know, we've got people coming on all the time like, oh, yeah, I just, just you know, crack my PlayStation, it was easy, like, did it in two minutes, and I'm just like, you know, blown away by it, I'm just like, what? And then, like you say, Ravi's like, even, like, what's a PS3? <laughs> 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 well, actually, if you are a bit of a clumsy gamer, um, <laughs> this device, actually, that we're going to talk about next, uh, could be quite useful because uh, this is a little device. They're calling this Save the Hero, which I think is um, quite a cool little title. And this is a device from Japan. But if you've got kind of you may, maybe neglected cartridges that you haven't really looked inside for a while and uh, they've got internal batteries in there that have run out of juice and you haven't replaced them, or even worse, maybe they've leaked a bit and you've lost all your precious save data. This is a device that lets you back up all of those save games. But also the ROM, so if you have, like, a, a you know, a jailbroken device, you can legally play the ROMs on them 
um, because you can use this device to back it up. But the, the thing about this is, yeah, the save data as well. Being able to get your old saves off some of these uh, titles are amazing. And, you know, it's it's pretty cool because it does, like, a lot of systems in one. You know, uh, what are all the systems here, Joe? Like, Yeah, it's got the NES, the SNES, the N64, the Mega Drive Flash Genesis. Um, and the entire Game Boy line, so you know, Game Boy Color, Game, original Game Boy and Game Boy Advance, so a lot of a lot of consoles on there. Yeah, and, and like they're saying, it's going to be about seventy quid. But you know, the fact that you could get your whole collection and have it digitized with your saves, <laughs> all of that, and I can imagine you can then use these ROMs in like other systems or, you know, emulate them on, on whatever you want as well because you kind of own the original cart. But um, just that save data is is just so vital, you know. It's, it's, it's like a time machine. Have you guys ever found, like, an old memory card? Or mm. have you found one of your old saves and then it just takes you back to that time period when oh, you're yeah. stuck on that level? Oh, a million, million, million percent. And, it, and I, you know, funny you should say that I bought some PS2 memory cards a few years back and I went to wipe them and I found, like, all the old saves, you know, of, like, the, the family who owned it before and it said, you know, like, it was like a Noddy game for PS2, you know, Noddy and his little yellow car. And it was like, Dad, save one, like, Jamie saved two. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it's so sweet, delete. <laughs> so this is... This is pretty cool that, like, you can essentially rip it and save it. Yeah, and I've got um, one of my Mega CD32s I hooked up a while ago, and I think I found a few saves on there. I think there's one from, God, I want to say it was like Gloom or something. Oh, wow. And that must have been on there since about 95, 96. I'm quite impressed at the memory on the end. Uh, the non-volatile RAM in there has lasted that long without being kind of erased. But um, it's definitely, I get, I get a bit depressed. When I find old memory cards and I love them up again, so I'm like, I could never reach this part of the game anymore. But you, you know, if you're like a, a Game Boy user or something, and um, you're really into Pokemon, and like, you know, you have different periods and all the different Pokemon games and stuff, this this can just be absolutely ideal for you. And then you want to play it on like a different system, or or you know, you want to transfer it and then have it on an analog pocket or something. You know, it's pretty cool. So never had been other solutions like this before kind of backup devices. I mean, I'm looking through the comments here on um, this Nintendo Life article that I link up, and people are talking about, you know, the fact that there was one ones back in the late 90s where you'd use a, a serial or a parallel cable and hook it up to a Windows 98 machine and that kind of thing. But I think having something where not only can you connect various different console cartridges to it, but also the fact that it's, what, 70 quid you said this is going to be? Yeah. So it's affordable. And that's the thing, like, yeah, you could do it with a disc doctor and then have it on floppy disk. And then, yeah. You know, but are you going to be able to get the saves off that? And, you know, just the fact that also it's like the Retron or something. It does so many, so many different devices. And, uh, yeah, I just like it, the, the simplicity of it. So now, I don't know how expensive it's going to be if it's getting shit from Japan and... Uh, yeah stuff like that, because it does, I've just checked out the Kickstarter, and it does seem to be mostly in Japanese. Well, it has been backed by the looks of it as well, so I mean, it's definitely going ahead, 209 people have backed this, and it just finished um, last week at the time of recording this, so uh, yeah, definitely, I mean, again, if it's something that actually takes off, a lot of these kind of things end up getting, you know, distributors around the world, so it doesn't look like, you know, it's not a massive system, it's not like they're going to have to ship it in like a, you know, a huge like wooden box or anything, yeah. so... And imagine if you've just got some, like, mass collection or some just random 
PCBs that you don't even know what they are, and you plug them in and you go, oh, okay, it's that game. Or, you know, oh, it's the developer build of this. You know, it's really interesting. Yeah, I think even just for that, yeah, batting and dumping cartridges, you know, it's worth having that in your collection just to be able to do that side of it, let alone, you know, the uh, the, the, the save game functionality of it as well. So, um, yeah, it looks really good. I think definitely something that we're all going to want in our uh, retro gaming collection. So, uh, if you want to get a hold of that, um, the Kickstarter's finished now. I imagine the backers will be getting it, and we'll keep an eye on uh, anything else we hear from it. We'll link up that and all the stories we talk about in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, we're talking about this last week. Um, let's take a second just to give a quick moment to uh, talk about our latest sponsor of the Retro Hour podcast. And uh, this is a new company that's come on board with a new service. And when we first heard about this, we said, you know, we want to work with you guys because this is something that we really believe in. Now, obviously, you and I, Joe, at the moment are uh, physically not very well, you know, having come down with COVID. But obviously, mental health is something that I think has taken, you know, globally a battering over the last couple of years in particular, with everything, you know, the entire planet's been through. And our sponsor this week is our friends at BetterHelp Online Therapy. And we were talking last week about, you know, some of the, the stigmas around mental health. Actually, I know that's something that you do in your job, actually, Joe. Yeah, not not to go too far into it with, with my work and stuff, but I am actually the mental health advocate at work. And, you know, that's yeah. not something that I you know, nominated myself for or anything like that. It was just something that I I got put forward to do. And I, you know, I think that might be because I'm such a strong believer in that we should talk about our mental health, you know, and we shouldn't just bottle it up and, you know, kind of put it to the back of your mind because it, it does make you unhealthy. And going back to what I said last week, I'm a massive, massive believer in, you know, sometimes it, you don't have to put a label, put a name onto mental health. As I said, me and Dan are feeling physically under the weather right now, but I actually believe that you can be mentally under the weather, you know, yeah. and sometimes it isn't necessary because there's something wrong with you or anything. It's just you're not having a good day or a good week or even a good month or year. And 100%, we should reach out and talk to people about these things because it just doesn't go away sometimes and you shouldn't be afraid to just reach out. And I think better help is a really good way of doing that because of some people are, you know, it's all well and good me sitting here and saying you need to reach reach out and stuff like that, but some people, you know, are worried about reaching out or, you know, don't want to talk to somebody face-to-face, so I think this is a really, really good tool, you know, for people to use because you can do it over the phone, you can do it over video chat, but you don't have to go on video if you don't want to, you can do it over text, um, and also it doesn't have to be a tool to help if you already are feeling unwell. It could be a tool to kind of stop yourself from, you know, spiraling or getting, you know, getting worse, if you will. Um, It's something that is there to help with therapy. doesn't have to necessarily be something to to help fix you. It can be something to help just get you through, if that makes sense. Yes, I think that's the thing, you know, that when we were talking to them and mentioned to us, that, you know, all humans have got emotions. And sometimes... You can't avoid them. We just have to learn how to control them and live with them as well. So, uh, you know, we think it's really important that we take care of our mental health as well as our physical health, which is why our good friends at BetterHelp, who are customized online therapy that is a lot more affordable than in-person therapy as well. That's one really important point. Because a lot of people think, you know, therapy is for rich people, which it isn't. And actually, you'll get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. So we want you to give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. And of course, 
We've got you an offer, like we always do. So Retro Hour listeners at the moment can get 10% off the price of their first month. Now, all you have to do, and of course, you're helping out the podcast by taking advantage of these offers, is head to the website betterhelp.com slash retro. That's our exclusive link. Use that so they know that we've sent you betterhelp.com slash retro. And a big thank you to our friends at BetterHelp for their support of our show. Right then, while uh, Joe and I go and get back under our duvets, <laughs> we are going to now just kick back and enjoy listening to Ravi do this week's interview, uh, talking about the voices behind some of our favourite video games of all time, with our special guest this week, Ronnie Manella, is coming up next on the Retro Owl Podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour Podcast, and I'm here with voice artist, Lani Manella. How are you doing? Great, how are you? <laughs> Fantastic. Um, we always ask a question of our guests first, and this is kind of like, what was your first video game experience, or the first kind of video game you saw or heard? <laughs> you don't know Jack. <laughs> was that the game? <laughs> yeah, it was kind of like a, a question uh, an answer game that you could play and it was like watching a contestant play things and it would ask trivia questions and you would answer them and that was the first one I saw and at that time I had a boyfriend that was playing that and then in the background he would also show me World of Warcraft or something but uh, you don't know Jack Pong uh, we're talking arcade stuff though Miss um, Pac-Man those were all the very 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 first ones and then I think the first one I actually tried to play was I believe it was StarCraft. Oh, and wow. because I was I was the third queen and the medevac pilot and I I'm a terrible gamer, right? I never grew up with someone teaching me the the platforms and how to do this and how to do that. Um I'm really old and ancient I learned on stone tablets. And so, you know, when I um, try to figure something out. I remember being at the Electronic Entertainment Expo, and in order to get a T-shirt at the Sony place, you had to play nine games using the PlayStation, <laughs> but you didn't know what the button assignment was, and I was just trying to make Crash Bandicoot go up these stairs. I can make him jump up and down. I can make him go forward, but I can't make him jump and go forward, so I just got really frustrated. So I think that um, with StarCraft, I got rid of all – I had all the cheat codes, and I had demolished everything on the planet, and it said in order for the Zerg queen to pupate, you had to deposit her cocoon in the enemy headquarters, and I didn't even know about saving oh, in the wow. game. And <laughs> I've been playing for hours. Go. Oh, my God. I, I just, I've been playing for nine hours straight, and I got into the third level, played through everything possible, and I just took the CD out and threw it against the wall. I said, that's it. So, you know, the next attempt was probably Nancy Drew thinking that, oh, it's meant for 8- to 15-year-old girls. I can do this, right? Ah. Well, after 40 hours and it ended, and it was just a simple, okay, you're done. I thought, I have hit myself on the head with a hammer because it feels good when I stop. You know, (laughs) there's so much um, built-in time wasting, time spending, I should say, you know, and it can be fun, but it's just that uh, the reason I'm not so much of a gamer is because I have so little time um, that I don't have time to relax and and enjoy games as much as I would like. Well, when did you first realize you had, like, a talent for for doing voices and impressions of people? Well, probably when I was very little and I had no friends and I was an only child, and so I would probably imitate things on TV uh, that I would see, 
like, oh, I would be watching Bugs Bunny or something, you know, and, and I wouldn't be laughing. I would just be intricately imitating things. When I got into school, especially high school, I got in more trouble for that because I'd be imitating the teachers and, you know, I, would, I just had too much uh, energy and too much uh, boredom. You know what I mean? It was, I think I was kind of a smart person, and so when things go slowly, I, I try to amuse people by telling jokes. We'd have in the UK a whole kind of group of kids that would constantly, and adults, that would constantly quote Monty Python, and they would know every single like word, and they'd also know every accent, and they'd do the whole scene like in one go. You know, it's so funny. I've always said that no two British people think the other guy's accent is worth a shite. Right? Yeah. And um, so even if you say RP and, you know, receive pronunciation, I could tell you that story about the British Water Authority. But the point being is that when I try, and I have a whole worldwide talent pool, okay, and when we do Neverwinter Dungeons and Dragons, oftentimes they say the elves would be British. Hmm. Um, we, we, we try to get the dwarves Scottish, and we did a good job. But then Wizards of the Coast decided that, oh, no, Scotland wasn't invented yet. So we had to take away all the Scottish accents of the dwarves. And anyway, so for the for the British things, if I have people that are always coming on to me saying, hey, hire me, I'm a voice person, I want to be added to your roster. Well, I will ask them what accents they do. And if they say they do a British accent, I'll say, can you give me an example? And they all go into Monty Python. Okay, take the pink hanky out of your sleeve. And uh, no, that's not what we can do. Uh, so. It's pretty funny. Well, you ended up, like, working on radio and stuff. What what was that like? Because uh, we, we had a history of, like, as you said, Monty Python and stuff and Kenny Everett and uh, all, all these kind of voices and impressions on radio. Yes, the radio, when you do morning drive radio, which I was stuck in, you get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and have to be, we had to actually work in Tijuana, Mexico for the biggest station that, that reached all the way from Rosarita Beach to Santa Barbara, which is quite a, a distance. And anyway, um, when we worked down there and the morning drive, you have to be spontaneous uh, and whoever's in the news. So I was kind of the go-to person to imitate uh, things. I remember before I even got a job, they would call me up at 5 in the morning because they didn't have a shtick or maybe 6 o'clock, and say, okay, uh, today is the first day that the lottery is starting. So be Dr. Ruth Westheimer, who's that sex psychologist or whatever, and I'm going to be back in two minutes and make up a stick of how to choose lottery numbers based on sexual organs or something. And so I would have to say, well, anybody who is as short and ugly and looks like me can have sex, well, anybody can. <laughs> you know, so it was a very spontaneous never planned kind of a thing where uh, we always had to be doing voices, impersonations. Oh, John Rivers, can we drop? I've had 70 faces that my boobs are on my shoulder pads, you know. So I was Joan Rivers and Catherine Hepburn and um, all kinds of weird things. And that's how that kind of got started. And that's what led to certain people like GT Interactive um, hearing me do these imitations and asking me if I could imitate Fern Gully, the movie people, which I had never heard of, because they were pitching the laser disc to Phillips and Magnavox. I go back that far, actually farther, but that's a long way back. Yeah, because a laser disc was really big, but um, in, the, in the UK it was kind of like a really expensive 
um, mm-hmm. you know, oddity. But um, what was that like then? Because Magnavox had a big kind of legacy with televisions and uh, even video game consoles and, well, and Panasonic um, as well. Yes. Well, GT Interactive was also into making interactive television. And I was part of that. I was a vampire that uh, the guy had me reading off a teleprompter. I never even saw the script before. I was all dressed up like a vampire with actual fangs that were made for me. And you'd be asking trivia questions, and I'd be pulling some imaginary lever and uh, be a multiple choice. And people would have remote controls that they could choose and play, you know, live. Was that over cable that I guess so. And it didn't end up going anywhere, but they had a select audience. You know, they, they were meant to have it go, and maybe it was nationwide, I don't know. But at that time, uh, when I was there, they also, that was up in Los Angeles, and I remember that, well, they had a Carlsbad office, which was in San Diego, and that was what was doing this Dragon arcade game that was a Dragon Slayer. And Dragon's Lair, yeah, right, exactly. So I worked on that, and then they said, you know, you're really good. Why don't you go downstairs? We're working on some kids' CD-ROMs. I didn't even know what a CD-ROM was. I swear. That, yeah, I'm like that clueless. So those kids' games were like, one of them was called Night and Day, and it was sort of like how kids' imagination turns things like faucets, which looks like a faucet during the day, but then you have a nighttime screen, and they can imagine it being a scary dragon. You know what I mean? And yeah. so you would click on things, and it would make noises. And believe it or not, I would have to be, uh, say, Lost and Found was a click game, kind of like Where's Waldo. But I would have to write these rhyming clues, like, um, I am a chair and I'm painted red. You better find me before you're dead. You know what I mean? Whatever. It had to be all these voices of different things that people would have to search out. And then I said, hey, um, who else does these CD-ROMs? I don't know. Well, having been a producer and worked in radio, I said, well, who would know? I don't know. Why don't you go to the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I went to the CES and handed out my cassettes and what have you and did that for a couple of years. And it really wasn't that productive because um, I don't bug people. And then I went to Game Developers Conference for a couple of years, and I spoke at one of them. And I went to the 13 E3s. You know, I don't remember which E3 it was, but there was some girl behind me, and you'd wait for the guy to finish demoing the game. Because most of the people that would hire me are not at these trade shows. These are the demonstrator people. These are the marketing guys, right? And the producers are generally not there. And so I remember some girl behind me going, I think his voice is too. And the producer just, the, the demo guy gave her a blank look, and it made me think, hmm, you know, I should make a one-stop shop where I can bring all the worldwide talent together and make it easy, and I'll do all the paperwork and all the payment and do all the tax stuff, and I can direct, and we'll make it easy. I can even write some of the scripts and stuff, and that's how Audio Guides got started. It was just, I guess, I got known as, if it's impossible and you have no budget, give it to Lonnie. I guess, I guess it was a, an emerging area, because like, like you said, with um, Dragon's Lair, that was, that was really ahead of its time. So they had this, um, and it was notorious because the arcade would always break. Because <laughs> oh, <laughs> it was no. a giant laser disc, and you know, you'd have it in the yeah. arcade, and uh, 
it was it was the one that was always broken that everybody wanted to use it. So oh my gosh! It must have been kind of hard to to just even convince people that it was worth getting someone on to to do voice back then. Well, I think that when it became the game, I remember auditioning for it, and um, they had a big thick script, and it was you went to this guy's little house, it was a converted house, and I walk in the room, and uh, the casting guy says, oh, she's really talented. And they, I said, well, what parts do you want me to read for? And they go, well, you can read for whatever you want. And I opened it up, and there was like um, a wood elf. I said, can I do a wood elf? Oh, no, that's a guy's part. Wait, I could be a guy if you wanted me to. <laughs> and they went, what? <laughs> and so then they said, why don't you try the princess part? Oh, anybody can be a princess, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> so they said, um... All right, try this other one. I did, and they just threw the whole script on the ground. And I thought, uh oh, I've kicked somebody off. What did I do wrong? Christ, you could probably do this whole thing yourself. <laughs> and they acted like they were mad at me, you know. So they were going to have Mark Harmon be the part of the prince, and they were going to go union at the last minute. Mark, you know, backed out of it. But yeah, weird things happen in this business. So you set your company up, and then um. Kind of that 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 was during around 1992. So that was the period yeah. when when CD-ROM actually just just started getting into people's hands. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the PC scene was starting to get really big. Did you um you, you kind of got involved with a uh, Duke Nukem and uh, <laughs> yeah, and you became the voice director on that game. But how did that right. happen? Well, I don't remember how I... I did meet George Roussard, who was the president who owned Apogee 3D Rums, and I think he reached out and said, I'm looking for a male part for this game we're working on, and he wanted it to sound like some sound clip that he sent me from Full Metal Jacket. And oh, I said, that's oh. a great film. I said, well, you know, that's easy. I, I know just the guy. Took it to John St. John, and he did it, and they said, fine. And Duke became quite a sensation for the, well, they kind of ripped off Bruce Campbell's script from Living Dead, you know, but um, people started downloading the prompts, like, come get some, because they thought it was kind of sexually oriented, you know? So I remember people were using that for their computer prompts back in the day. He was like the ultimate dude, Duke was, and uh, having that voice was an element Mm -hmm. that wasn't in there before that really added to it. And what's really funny is that John St. John can do amazing voices. Every every character of The Simpsons and uh, Roger Rabbit and all kinds. Of, he, he was Alan Rickman's voice in Die Hard Trilogy. Wow. So um, I remember we had more fun because I would play some female parts in Duke Nukem. And um, John and I are pretty spontaneous improving. And uh, <laughs> I remember we were improving in an orgasm scene <clears throat> because he improved the the line, I'm going to rip your head off and down your neck, yeah. <laughs> you know. And so they actually animated to it. And so I remember, you know, he was going, oh, baby, oh, oh, dude, oh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, baby, oh, 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 <laughs> well, well, kind of talking about that, that was, that was a bit where, like, video games kind of started to turn adult and, um, you know, like, they, they were appealing for the older, older group, but as mm-hmm. well as, as well as kind of younger teenagers. Um, you did stuff like Shadow Warrior as well, and um, uh, a few of those first-person shooter games as well. God, that's one I don't remember. I mean, 
there was a lot of, of weird games that, that we did. Um, Forsaken was one that Acclaim did. Yeah. And they actually had me do a swearing patch. A, <laughs> <laughs> I had to be the most vulgar, but I had to be gender neutral so that my sexual uh, offensive remarks could apply to either gender. Okay. And in the characters that were in there, like a Chinese lady and everything, <laughs> doing a sexual insult patch. Wow, it really was the 90s, wasn't it? Kind of <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I won't say it because you, you said that we should keep it clean. But, um, yeah, I had to make up those things on the fly. And I could not imagine how they would market that. But, you know, that's what we do. Typically, not too many people know how us voice actors. They, they, they were definitely aiming for edgy stuff back then, weren't they? Uh, well, I'll the show you though. And sell them. Yeah. One thing that most people don't realize is that if you're going to credit a voice actor or an actor, I don't care if it's an on-screen actor for television or movies, credit the script or discredit the script first, because that is where it all starts, and it can be a pile of poo, and you can gold plate it, but it's still going to sound like a pile of crap. You know, and so I think that the scripts that we saw in games, for example, when we did Unreal, the Unreal tournaments, that was back when you had so little memory, mm. you know, um, that they couldn't have as many taunts. So, you know, I gave them like 50 taunts, but they would have stuff like, is that your liver over there? <laughs> and like, That's lame. How about, you know, your face, your ass, what's the difference or something like that? And the point was that the memory also, I remember doing Starcross, the first one. Yeah. I was in the office. We weren't even in the studio. The uh, Glenn Stafford was the music guy whose wife happened to be an airline stewardess. And so we were thinking of, um, you know, when you click on a character, you get the annoyance factor mm. reaction. That's where you can put some comedy in. And I've always thought that games should have more wit and humor in them. Um, but... He would say, caution when exiting your luggage may shift. And I would say, if you're going to hurl chunks, you the vomit bag in front of you. Or in the event of a water landing, you too can be used as a flotation device. You know, um, so those are the things that people talk about. And that's what started becoming missing later. You know what I mean? They started taking away, the, like I know when you're playing StarCraft, you could get into some science, you could click on some science ship. And you would hear me as Adria the Witch from Diablo saying, I sense a soul in search of answers. And people would talk about that. Yeah. You know, because it was an unexpected surprise and, and a pleasant surprise rather than just having, I've got a bad feeling about this. I mean, how many times have we heard that in a game? I mean, you, you did Diablo 1 and 2 as well as uh, right. StarCraft, which are both like, Amazing titles, you know, really pioneering in the the. Well, I think World of Warcraft. I think World of Warcraft was the first claim to fame uh, where I was at GDC, and people said, "Oh, my producer wants to meet you because you're the witch and the peg leg boy, and you know, whatever." Um, But I was a banshee and the succubus and the harpy and um, Marla Stormclaw and Zayla the Dragonborn, all these other characters in um, many different World of Warcraft, and also one of the most annoying, but iconic voices of Cinder Ghost of the Dragon, which uh, they also brought her back in Hearthstone, the card game. And she was just screaming all the time. And <laughs> um, so, and that's the same, I think you wanted to ask me about Bugsy. 
And, uh, yeah, Bubsy. Um, we we uh, we've got a bit of a joke on the podcast where um, our, our one of our hosts, his wife, really loves Bubsy, and we're always oh my taking the mick out of Bubsy and saying oh. this isn't the best game, you know. <laughs> Bubsy well, 3D. Okay, I'll give you the the as quick as I can what happened there. I love it when I'm brought up to do something and I don't know what I'm going to do. Like yeah. when I did all these monster voices for It Chapter 2, the movie. Someone recommended me. And when I did the, the Infected and the Clicker and the Bloater for Last of Us, someone recommended me. I didn't know. When I'm doing Skyrim, and they just, yeah. <laughs> they said, okay, you're a dark elf, so be British and have a deep voice and be a bitch. And I, you know, they would show me the line, flash it on a screen, I didn't know anything about the game. I knew nothing about the context. I thought she was going to be a companion. It turned out they gave that voice to all the dumb near females. So I was Janessa and this and that and whatever later. I could have done different voices, but they that's what happened. You know what I mean? So I don't know. Weird things happen. But Bubsy, 3DO, was the company, and they paid for my flight. I always go up and back the same day wherever I'm going, whether it's to go to Nintendo in Washington and work on Smash Brothers or Lucas or, you know, whatever. I'm always up and back the same day. And so with Bubsy, I'm in the studio. I've got these headphones on, and they say, okay, we like this voice, and we want you to imitate it. Oh, my God, it hurt my ears to hear it. I mean, they're like, Bubsy, okay, we're Bubsy. Oh, my God. I mean, are you sure? You want something as annoying as that? You know, I mean, yeah, I'm, I just couldn't believe it. I'm shaking my head the whole time. And, you know, I'm my ears are bleeding practically after doing this thing for so long. But, um, you know, of all my 14-page resume, when somebody picks Bubsy out, I'm going, really? Really? <laughs> yeah. You had to pick that one? Okay. Don't ask me about Bubsy. <laughs> Well, see, the thing is that we don't know anything about most all of the games that we do. Um, I don't care what game it is. We don't know any backstory. We don't We don't necessarily have to. Um, and some of us have never seen the script before. We get it and have to perform. Um, and, you know, I remember uh, there was going to be a game out by Blizzard, and it never came out. And um, it was Alex Strasser was a dragon, uh, and she was supposed to be the queen of all dragons. And very big. And we were recording at a studio that Sierra and Blizzard owned, but they were using it for Fisher-Price games, like Math Blaster and Fisher-Price ABCs and all that. So the engineer was a guy used to working on kitty stuff. Hmm. And, oh, now he had the big guys with the ACDC black T-shirts, you know. And (laughs) so we had met outside in the lobby area discussing what kind of a voice we could give this queen of all dragons. And... First, we were thinking, Alex Trasa is Russian, so maybe we can make a Russian. Or, you know, maybe we can make her all these ideas that were very tough. Maybe we can make her monsters. Okay. We get in there, and the guy is talking with them, and they wouldn't let me talk. I couldn't hear what they're saying. And finally, he gets on the mic, and he goes, Lonnie, we decided that she is so powerful that you don't have to sound powerful. Just be yourself. What? <laughs> okay. Um... So my first line was looking down at an orc. I didn't know what an orc was. And they're saying, he's like an ant compared to you in size. And orcs are usually pretty big, you know, things. And so my first line was, how could you possibly be of use to me? And the guy kept saying, can you pull it back? 
Okay, how could you? And he kept saying, can you pull it back? Pretty sure I'm talking out of my butt. You know what I mean? I pulled back so much that I had no power, no nothing. And uh, it was just it was just amazing. A lot of these things happen because of people's ideas, and then we actors get blamed for them. Like Bugsy! <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was wondering as well, like, you did um, uh, Steven Spielberg's director's mm-hmm. chair, which was really pioneering. I think it had Penn and Teller in it as well. Um, oh, I didn't know that, but I, I know that, um, I don't think that 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 there was much writing there. I mean, it came across, it was good. We did Clyde Barker's Undying, too, which was um, very interesting. But Spielberg came out before its time. So correct me if I'm wrong, most people didn't have adequate computers to play it. Yeah, it was really early, and it was like one of the kind of interactive FMV kind of titles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, also, people were complaining. I remember the major complaint about it was that the guns that you would use to shoot things had very poor sights. So they were old guns, and so if you aimed correctly, you'd be off. Okay. <laughs> and people were really mad about that because they couldn't kill what they were supposed to kill. <laughs> well, uh, one of my f- favorite titles was um, Die Hard Trilogy as well, and you, you, you mm-hmm. mentioned that earlier. What, what was it like kind of having film references and be able to... Oh, we didn't. They made me... I had to buy it myself. I had to buy oh, all of them wow. and tape it on, on a, a VHS and then transfer some of the, the stuff myself onto a cassette and play it for the people for reference. No, they didn't supply us with anything. It was um, Fox Probe did it in England. And there was another guy, I won't mention his name, but um, he was working in America for Fox, and uh, they had to approve it, right? So we sent them some sound samples of what we had, but he wouldn't even give me his phone number. And then also, Probe was a little bit naive in that day, and I'm not good with paperwork. I'm terrible. You know, I'll do the work first. I'm really terrible with money. Um, but they had a contract that said, we own the rights throughout the galaxy. It <laughs> negates it legally right then and there. I didn't know anything about that. But they were happy with everything, and uh, we got uh, actually a sound designer, Jamie Scott, was Bruce Willis. Yeah. So I kind of trained him how to, how to be Bruce. He did a damn good job. The voices were really, like, accurate in, in that, mm-hmm. you know, even though it was all, all impersonations of people. And I remember being, this is the first time where I learned about emotes, exertions, and things like that, because we were supposed to, now this is more action-specific. In the old days, we would have to show different being attacked and being hurt by different things, throat slash, jumping in hot lava, hit on the head. Nowadays, it's just light, medium, and heavy. Okay, it's not fun anymore. But back in those days, we had to differentiate, and I, I swear this is absolutely correct, between being hit by a bullet, a grenade, or a rocket launcher. And I said, really? We have to make a sound being hit by a grenade? <laughs> but that's how big it had to be. Everything was way over the top. I guess. That's kind of... That's like, you know, the, the movies that make a gun sound like a cannon. That's where it all started. And there was a big competition between sound designers for movies and games. One was always trying to outdo and be bigger than the other. And this is where it all started in games. I guess kind of trying to put that level of emotion and expression. And, you know, back then you had smaller kind of samples and stuff. Um, you must have really had to, you know, go for it when you, you're getting hit by something or really really, you know, uh, kind of go out there. Would you like me to illustrate? 
Yeah, um, did you you did a real tournament? Did you do what are the kind of getting? I did lots of that? I did lots <laughs> of juggernauts. I did the the, announce, the opening announcer, and they wanted like a soccer mom and a sexy British lady and a blah 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 blah. You know, it was it was insane. But yeah, a lot of the tough stuff like. But, you know, when you're hitting, it's usually now when you're getting hurt, it's there you go. Takes me back to those days. Yeah, I, one thing I loved about um, a real tournament as well was was the kind of uh, the different kills. You know, headshots and then like multi oh, yeah. kill and uh, that really added fun to the game. You know. I got to tell you, there was this guy that was doing the announcer voice, and it was going to be pitched down and everything from his normal voice, and they wanted it very flat. Everything would be like, no, not, uh, red team wins the match. So you couldn't show any favoritism, like yellow team wins the match, da 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 And this guy used to be a radio puker. You know, he was kind of like John St. John had his yeah. radio days. Like, this is John St. John. But this guy also wanted to put Red G wins up because he used to be the announcer for the Cincinnati Bengals or something. You know what I mean? So I had to keep him and John flat. You know, say, as you're talking, make your hand go across in a horizontal line so you can't go, you know, that kind of thing. So that's where we would do the death match, you know, and that, all that kind of stuff. It had to be very neutral because this guy and John both, John would turn Duke instead of being kind of like a Clint Eastwood, like, come get some, be drunk, get some. <laughs> Kind so that's where American can, sports announcer style. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's very hard. Once once a radio puker, always a radio puker. It's hard to get them not to because in the old days, you know, not everybody had a deep voice. Mm. So they learned to go to the Columbia School of Broadcasting to talk like that. You know, and that's what we call the radio puker. And so when you have people over enunciating and making everything sound like Sunday, 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 you know, that kind of thing, it's, it makes it harder to make them a believable character. And this has gone so far in the opposite direction now. Games are asking for total realism, hmm. nothing over the top. And this may work if you had some overly animated cinematics that are interesting to watch. But when you're doing a top-down thing, which most games are, and there's no cutscene, and or maybe you're a talking head with chewing gum lip flap is telling you, it's up to you to bring the three gems to the blacksmith in Arendelle, you know what I mean? Um, these, I think you should always have a little more interest, but now we've gone full circle, so now people just want you to kind of be kind of deadpan. Yeah, I kind of enjoyed that campness and that kind of, you know, just mm-hmm. total out there fun that they had back then. I, I, I was wondering... How did you go about kind of creating alien voices or, or you know, <laughs> like a language, uh, something that doesn't exist, you know? Yeah, I'm pretty good at that. I don't know. I mean, my method might be thinking of a word like, uh, oh, first you have to figure what kind of creature is it. So I've done several things, whether they be um, clicky type of things or garbly type of things or um, whatever. So first you've got to know, like, I was the Tuscar, which is like a walrusy looking things in World of Warcraft, right? And they had their own language. But <laughs> whoever wrote it on the script wrote nothing but consonants. <laughs> like C-N-R-R-G-D-D-W. Am I, uh, what? So um, is, am I supposed to be saying something? So shouldn't I have the same amount of words in whatever I'm making up? Like if you're saying, like, get away from me, 
you know, whatever. Should I go, you know, whatever. You just kind of make up this this garbage, just I guess they would like in Game of Thrones. They actually had a language, and Klingons have their own language. But it kind of has to be set to what kind of creature that it is. And uh, when I'm let loose, I can do pretty well. But the only problem is if they have other creatures, which generally doesn't happen. If you have a whole race of creatures, it's typically you only have one yeah. that's doing their own alien language. Otherwise, everyone would have to speak the same alien language. Um, you also mentioned that you did some stuff with uh, Cygnosis and uh, you, you, you <laughs> came over to England and also the Waterboard Authority, which sounds really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So SCI, Sales Curves Interactive, I think. Um, one of the few companies that was owned by a woman, Jane, I forgot her last name, wonderful lady. Uh, they flew me over to record the American part because they had a British comedian doing the other male main player part. Yes. And um, I remember, you know, I, I landed in London and then went to Southampton. And uh, we went to New Forest. Have you ever been to New Forest? No, but I, I hear it's lovely. I need to, one place I need to visit. <laughs> <laughs> well, picture this. Um, Southampton is kind of a small thing. You can look out over the the sea and see the Isle of Man way, 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 you know, way in the distance. But New Forest was a two-rut road. You know what I mean? Dirt yeah. with the grass growing in the middle. And... <laughs> We would be driving, and there was a Scottish guy and an English guy, and they all hated each other's accent. You know, it was just a load of fun. Um, but we would be driving by a bus stop, and a donkey would be actually sitting in on the bench. <laughs> and then there was some famous restaurant, I think we ate at it later, um, owned by a British prince, and he had all these um, large old cars, like Duesenbergs and, you know, these, these fancy cars parked out in front. And then... We went on this two-way. You couldn't pass anybody because it was just this. Yeah, thing yeah. Was, you, you have to stop and wait for them to drive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But, there was, but there was trees and bushes on each side. So I don't know how anybody would have, you know, passed anybody. But we finally get to this guy's house, and he had a, a lovely studio. And um, I'm recording there, and um, somebody right next door had a business of winding the tape on cassettes to make blank cassettes. That was his business. And so he comes over, and he says, um... Uh, excuse me, uh, do you do a British accent by any chance? You know, I said, uh, sure. And he said, oh, good. Well, here's the script. I need this for the British Water Authority, and they're going to be broadcasting this on loudspeakers on top of trucks and, and uh, taxis and cabs and whatever um, around town, uh, all over England. And so it's something like, I don't remember the message. It was back in, that was in 95. And it was something like, um, may we have your attention, please? This is the British Water Authority, and we need to conserve water between the hours of blah, blah, and blah, blah. Thank you very much. This is being the British Water Authority. You know, blah, blah, blah. So <laughs> I was actually the voice of the British Water Authority. I think that was probably, we, we had a thing called the hosepipe ban, which was um, <laughs> where, where, you know, too many people were using hosepipes to, like, wash their car. Ah. So maybe it was when they were limiting on the amount of water, but, but they did some kind of mad announcement scheme. <laughs> yeah, we've had that over here where we have, um, you know, rationing of some, we're supposed to not run sprinklers at certain days of the week because California is notorious for drought. Yeah, yeah. And um, so we've had that, but we never had it announced on loudspeakers. <laughs> 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 it, would just, it would just show it on the news report or something like that, but... Um, 
it's, I've had to, I was in the, an animated movie called The Queen's Court, and, and I was uh, actually trying out for Queen Elizabeth. And, oh, I, wow. and I was doing a great job, but I said, do you want her younger? Do you want her, oh, oh, we want her, oh, we want her over the top. Really? Well, because Queen Elizabeth is not over the top. <laughs> yeah. So, but they wanted that. I didn't get it, but the three other British people that were actually, you know, UK, um, so I did a marvelous job. I ended up being a, a Scottish stable boy. There's some of this on YouTube, you know. Oh, really? How did you show up? You know, it was just weird, you know, but I, it was a fun, it was a fun thing. But believe it or not, that movie had Donald Trump in it. Oh, my gosh. It's a, it's a fun movie. It's kind of like a, a dog, a talking dog. I think I've seen it on that. And that's like, like called the pop-up, um, you know, uh, it's, yeah. it's CGI, isn't it? Well, yeah. It, if you look up um, Lonnie Manella, Queen's Court, you'll see my little Scottish part in there. But it was fun. And um, so I just I just enjoy the sense of humor, um, the British sense of humor, too. And being in England... I remember it was about March or May, and the sun never set. It was like, it always looked like it was 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And um, the thing I remember, too, is that soft drinks. I'm used to drinking Diet Coke out of an aluminum can. And there they would limit you to one square of ice in a glass. I'm thinking, <laughs> I don't want my Coke in a glass. <laughs> but that was a, it, was, it was a lot of fun. I really appreciate that. And then, oh, you want to know about Cygnosis? Yeah. Well, see, that was the thing. Um, I was working six days in Southampton, and then they, I took the train up to London to work for Cygnosis. And um, that, at that time, you know, I knew nothing. I still knew nothing about the game. I was just a bunch of different parts and different accents. And then I left the next day and went back to America. But um, it was funny when they were saying, do a cross between these two accents. I'm like, okay, uh, how would that happen? Well, which title you was know, that? Uh, Ring Cycle. I don't know if it ever came out, you know, but, but that's what it was. Well, another another huge series that you did uh, was, was Nancy Drew. And um, <laughs> amazingly, like, her, in, her interactive, they came from... American laser games, which were the kind of laser disc pioneers that did um, Mad Dog McCree and stuff like that previously. So they had that kind of interactive video connection. What what was it like doing that series? It was quite interesting because um, Nancy was not allowed to be cool or hip or be, um, what would you call it, confrontational. When she was asking questions of things, she was all had to be Miss Goody Two Shoes. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, nicey, nicey. I couldn't make, yeah, I couldn't even say things like, um, whoa, you know, that was too cool. I'd probably have to say genie or whatever. <laughs> but um, kind of geeky. Uh, well, it was to try to appeal to eight to 15 year old girls and be all, um, and you know what is amazing to me is I never realized how many. I should, I hate even saying this, how many fans hmm. that I have, but they're always, they're still, to this day, they're writing me to do a congratulations or a happy birthday or some sort of mystery thing for their wife or their girlfriend or their, their boyfriend or some some gay couple getting married. You know what I mean? They will have me do these, these clips, which I do for free. And um, so I'm glad that she still has some life. But in the old games, the writer was... I mean, the writers were just fabulous. And you could inadvertently learn math yeah. uh, by having to feed horses different amounts of things for which you did not have the accurate measuring cups for. 
So you would you would learn what would total the amount by mixing certain amounts of measuring cups, or they would have things of observing different birds or identifying different things. And then as it got later and later, it just became a bunch of puzzles, which was okay, but you didn't really learn anything. And then they went to the Unity engine and fired everybody, <laughs> including me. <laughs> And I think that's kind of where it rests. I'm not sure they're going to be back with anything. Well, well, something totally different um, to Nancy Drew was um, kind of uh, these legacy titles, which would be like Soul Blade and um, Mortal Kombat as well. So y- you were on the mm. recent recent titles of those. and uh, uh, No, I was only on Mortal Kombat 9. 9, okay. Uh, yeah, I was uh, Sindel and Shiva. Oh, nice. And I didn't know anything about it. Warner Brothers was there and in the L.A. studios. And uh, it was so funny because I didn't know any of the story about it at all. I didn't even know how the game played. So later when I saw the YouTube clips <laughs> and how actually I'd be fighting myself, I would be Sindel ripping Shiva apart. And, she, you know, how you they rip each other from the head in half. <laughs> it is so gory. I'm like, oh, my God. So um, the emotes were probably the exertions were probably the most, uh, the set was not your typical attack, being attacked, die. There'd be stuff like, um, okay, uh, you jump, somersault. Somersault? Okay. Or land and flip over. Okay. So it was fun. And then I got done with Sindel and we did Shiva. And I said, they said, okay, that's a wrap. And wait a minute, doesn't Shiva have exertions? Oh, you can do exertions in a different voice? Well, duh. <laughs> really? Nobody else has been able to do that. And this was, it was Technicolor Studios at the time, which is one of the bigger L.A. studios. They're gone now. But they were chasing after me because I guess that was some unique ability that I didn't realize not everybody had. <laughs> but you, you were also Ivy as well, weren't you? Oh, yes. I remember Ivy. Um, there was a first Ivy that they brought me up and said, we want you to kind of sound like this. And with a British accent, it's fine. But there are certain sentences that are not conducive to a British accent, like, see them or something, you know, or whatever. So I remember there was a little uh, Japanese guy, and he was coming in the room with me to show me what to do for exertion. And he goes, okay, the first time you do a little exertion, like maybe you stab with a knife, just go, I said, oh, you mean like, and he goes, oh, you have done this before? Yeah, nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the same thing, i got to tell you a cute story with um, Sonic. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. Because um, uh, you, you did a bit on Sonic as well, didn't you? Yeah, I was Rouge the Bat for Sonic Adventures, and we worked on Sonic Heroes as well. But the funny part about it was that the Japanese people had not recorded any Japanese before they had animated it. <laughs> So the animators were putting big, wow, like mouth things, and it was inappropriate to what we were saying at the time. And so they finally just, we had to roll three-quarter inch tape and uh, back it up to watch the scene, and it would just be totally not matching with the, the set, and they would go, oh, it's okay. Just make it last as long as the Japanese symbols are on the screen. So if you ever have a problem with thinking that the lip flap wasn't big, now you know why. It, it's because... There was no Japanese so, recording. So kind of like bad dubbing where it was, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> the, the mouth didn't yeah. actually match what was coming out of it. 
Right. Um, so Amy would be walking along going, I'd say, can she go, do, 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 no, we can't say anything. So she'd be walking along this very boring hedge, and her mouth would all of a sudden go, wow, and then she'd walk along some more, and then she, then the monster would come, and her mouth wouldn't open at all. I'm thinking, okay, she needs to yawn or do something, because her mouth is open. Nope, can't have that. Can we make some noises for the monsters? Nope, can't have that. No room. You know, I'm thinking, like, Okay, well, um, that was a kind of an interesting thing. They wanted the people to actually look like the characters. Mm. Nakasan was an interesting guy, um, and I said they made us do a whole other audition after they'd already chosen the voices, and John St. John was Biggie, okay, the big fat cat. And, um, oh, my gosh, uh, it was a mess, a complete mess, because I forbade... Naka from seeing the people that were coming by. Who in the hell is going to look like an echidna? Yeah, yeah. They said that John St. John wasn't fat enough. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, <laughs> yeah, we're going to have a, a hedgehog, you know, a guy with quills coming out of him, you know. <laughs> we're we're going to have that. Yeah, and then it was one of the first times where they'd always let women, do the kids with hey, Sonic, you know, tails, whatever. They always used that, but this is the one time where they wanted to use real kids. And I, I warned them against that. I said, number one, they take longer to do. Number two, their voices can change if you have sequels. And nope, they still want to do that. And we had to go through three kids because they reached puberty. The, fu- the funny part in studio when I was doing Rouge was there was a part that she was supposed to sound like she was climbing up a cliff. And I know how to go in. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. It's like this. And the guy would hold his, his hand up like you're giving a V sign, like a victory sign, mm-hmm. and he'd hook his two fingers over and go, huh. and I'd go, that is climbing a cliff? A yes. <laughs> okay. So I went, huh. no, 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 like this. And he would make that same gesture. I'm doing exactly the same sound that he's doing. But he finally comes in, the stu- the, you know, where I am. He comes in my, my space, stands behind me, and does the little, and you know what I realized? All I was missing was the gesture. Ah. So I made I made the gesture and did the same sound. Goes, yeah! Yeah! <laughs> like no one's going to see the gesture. <laughs> but yeah. Exactly. But the point, too, is that they had Sonic drowning by saying blub, blub. That's like <laughs> having a horse say, nay, nay, you know. And I, I said, can we make him go, boop, boop? No. He oh. has to say blub, blub. Yes, okay, and that's all I said, and then I was deemed as being difficult to work with. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's really interesting, because that was like a, a period where it was going 3D, and uh, the transition was always a bit painful. <laughs> going into well, you remember the, the terrible, world. do you remember one of the most iconic memes or whatever was, all your base are belong to us? Oh, yes. <laughs> well, that's a great example of... Um, of the bad scripts, you know what I mean? But yeah. how they become a client, because they are so bad. And I've had many games like that, of uh, Ill Bleed, and where they go, Johnny, Johnny, ugh, Johnny, ugh, ugh, Johnny, ugh, ugh. You know, I just like, what the heck? And I guess it's all different regions as well. So um, do you speak any other languages? Do you have to do, like... Um, no, we don't. We don't. We could do localization, but it's been hard because... And, yes, a lot of our games, when I do never want it gets localized to many different languages. And so they have, we have to record our stuff to send 
over wherever they're doing the localization so they sound like us. But the problem is, I think a lot of people, for example, I've worked with a company in Finland, and they spoke really good English, and, you know, they got their English from watching old American TV shows like Knight Rider. Ah, okay. You know, so I think it's better if sometimes, because of the cultural difference in acting, such as German, they kind of act like machine guns. Because I know, because I've gotten the German stuff to listen to. Mm. And they would choose voice number one, can do these nine parts, can be all the same voice because they're not in the same scene together. Are you kidding? Um, okay, but we don't do things that way. But culturally, even the Japanese, um, they would speak more a, a different way in the cadence. And, you know, mm. Asian people, more respectful. You know, things of that. You know, I'm, I'm not talking like chicken number five. I'm not talking like that. I'm just talking about um, more ceremonious. And the Germans are much more attacked. And so localizing, I think, is probably beneficial when it's uh, subtitled in the language. And then they can hear the English acting. But and it's I, okay. And I guess it's like, it's, it's like you said with the British thing, where it's not, not everybody's that kind of stereotypical pronounced English. It's, there's... There's a lot of regional stuff in there as well. And with every language, there's a kind of regional vibe or there's a... a Well, the thing you you don't want to do, you can can really offend people. We did a, you know, like I told you, we did the the Hitler game and all that stuff. And we had somebody that was German in there. And because you can have Bavarian and Austrian Mm -hmm. and everything speaking German, um, because of what happened in the war, I guess the situation between Austria and Germany not being good, or let's just say Korea and Japan not being great, you have to be careful. Yeah. Because you can't sound like Arnold. You can't sound like Arnold Schwarzenegger. You're going to offend a German. Yeah. You know what exactly. I'm saying? Yeah. So it's, uh, it's a strange thing that you have to be kind of neutral. Um, and even I, I studied German and Spanish, and uh, I studied from Gunther Schultz, who would say that CHs are pronounced ich. Ich liebe dich, not ich liebe dich. And there's a difference of Bavaria, you know, having a sh instead of a kind of a sound. So you have to be, when, when um, a company called LocalSoft, which is a localization company in Spain, they would get their Spanish recorded, believe it or not, in the Canary Islands. Wow. Because they said they had the most neutral Spanish speaking because there's all kinds of Cuban influence when you get near Florida. Yeah. And I mean, there's all these different things. But I'd say when we're asked for a British accent, um, generally they're not going to specify, you know, like uh, West End or Croydon or something of that nature. It's, it's going to be more along the Lord of the Rings, you know what I mean? They're yeah. more more the Galadriel, the, the RP thing, the Jean-Luc Picard of Star Trek. Harry Potter, of that, you know. okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's not going to be allowed because that's another thing that Americans, uh, the theater has turned Cockney, which is not, it's just a rhyming language, like apples and pears or stairs, you know? It's not, hello, what's the matter with you? You know, that's like Mary Poppins, you know, but <laughs> yeah. that's... that's famously, uh, Dick Van Dyke was the... I know! Uh, <laughs> big one. Yeah, that was... I know! And so that that is, again, when people say Cockney, I don't think they realize, they mean the American bastardization of what theater did um, yeah. to that thing, but we don't have any call for it. As a matter of fact, most games don't even ask for French accents unless they're prostitutes. Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, so... I could I could imagine with um with kind of 
like the pandemic and stuff, has, has working remotely been a, mm-hmm. a, a big change? And uh, do people still kind of prefer in-studio work, or is, is working remotely becoming a, a, a lot more of a well, I'll tell you, uh, they always want you to have Source Connect paid. I don't have it. I go to another studio when they want that. And um, that's how you can be in one place and record like you're doing, you know what I mean? You're recording somewhere else. But to me, that you will get a line loss when you do that. Just like ISDN is kind of a thing of the past that you can use IPDTL to hook up to somebody else's ISDN. But what they always do when they have that in a session where you are somewhere, but it's your equipment and you're simultaneously recording somewhere else, is they'll have you save the file and then upload the raw file later. So there's no loss. Okay. Ah, okay. So I will tell you this though: it's changing. We're going. We're being asked. Like, I'm still asked to go to LA uh, to work for Blizzard, or um, I just worked on a Marvel title. And so um, I, I was in the studio. <laughs> the people directing me are remote, so I have to, you know, travel quite a distance. I don't mind. I, I will do it, no problem. But they're making a talent be in the studio, but. Everybody else is, is at home, and, well, and I don't think there's anybody. Are they like on a screen or something? Then? Well, one person, that one director was on a screen. The other one was just a still picture. And then I remember um, for Hearthstone. No, was it Hearthstone? Yeah, Hearthstone, which is not out yet. I mean, I've been in several Hearthstones, but the one that I most recently worked on, um, there was two women, and I didn't even know who they were. They weren't regular directors. I think they were designers or something, and they were just, you know, the engineer would show me a picture, and then they would give their two cents on it and have you do it that way. So, um, yeah, it's it's interesting because they used to have guest directors, hmm. and that would be making sense because the director would be there and, you know, maybe I like to move, and I don't care. I'm not trying to show off or do anything or be on camera. But the point is that nowadays there's a mix of Source Connect being used a lot but when people are, are now making you kind of go into the studio, and it's okay. I'm not that afraid of the pandemic. Everything has is, is got to be pre-approved um, for health standards. Yeah, and I guess, I guess they need that studio surrounding as well to have the, you know, the, the kind well, of... Well, you would think so, but how are you going to get it with Source Connect? Now, there's another thing that another company was doing, and they were providing, if you live in L.A., they would provide you with a remote recording unit. I'm thinking, uh, but I had to drive up to Encino to record at their studio for consistency. And in my mind, I'm thinking, how are you going to have consistency with people with a remote recording unit <laughs> when they're in different environments? But that's another thing that's happening. If uh, it's convenient, they will send out a rig. Because a lot of voice talents, especially celebrities, they are not engineers like we have to be. Mm. Yeah. We have to learn how to record ourselves and, and set the right levels and use a microphone and all that kind of stuff, which um, a lot of people were used to just letting the studio do that. So that's imperative right now. You have to learn how to use the software and how to set levels and get a clean recording no matter what. Because whether or not we're connected with Source Connect or recording on our own, it's got to be, you know, comparable and sound dry, like somebody's not recording in a bathroom or with a parakeet chirping in the in the background or something like that. So uh, that's part of being a voice actor now is being your own engineer and having decent equipment. Well, I, I was wondering, like, you've done 
a lot of video game titles. I was wondering, what's been your most enjoyable and kind of favorite game voice that you've ever done? I think being the monsters, uh, the end bosses, uh, the dragons I was in with, and all the stuff in Warcraft. And, um, but also, <laughs> I think the, the weirdest one was Last of Us. And um, that was the quarter-step, you know, infection that would turn these things into basically walking mushrooms or something at different stages of infection. And uh, when I was brought in, somebody from Blizzard had recommended me, and I didn't know what I was doing. And at that time, they didn't have anything really except stick figures, the avatars, mm. going through everything from choking, falling down, writhing on the ground, throwing up. You know, all this was in a sequence that might last about two minutes, and I was doing the whole thing. And um, at the end, you know, it's kind of like an energized zombie. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So I said, you know, I can be a lot more scary than this. And they said, oh, really? Well, we're out of time now, but we have these clickers, and they communicate making clicks. So why don't you imagine yourself being with other clickers, surrounding a table with a man strapped to it, and you want to have sex with him, go, I'm like, huh? No. <laughs> then, you know, you can do clicking by going out or, <laughs> in. And so I did that. But they, okay, they didn't have me for the clicker for that one. That was the next release. But they, on the way home, the agent called and said, they want you for the bloater. And that was the end boss, and I didn't know what, they were, what it was going to look like. So I managed to get it to record in San Diego, and I go in, and they say, okay, we imagine it to be like a sea mammal, like a seal having sex. Go. I'm like, what's with this having sex stuff, you know? <laughs> so, so those are the, you know, you have to, because I told them, you know, I've watched enough nature programs that usually male seals only make noise when they're fighting other male seals. Hmm. And so I had to imagine something like a, you know, and do this for an hour. But those so, are iconic characters as well. Like the, 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 those games, Last of Us, are like just absolutely amazing. Like they've been such a huge success. Well, then, but for the second game, when I came for the clicker, they had the clickers animated. And so we, we would, they would play the whole scenario of me, like, banging into walls and running down alleys and doing all this other kind of stuff. And that was um, interesting to do. Uh, it really does get the heart rate up because um, you have a rubber cap on and uh, lavalier mics, you know, lav mics attached to your forehead. And they do that so they think you can be not getting off access of the mic. So they expect you to be moving a lot, which is surprised me. But, you know, when you're exerting a lot of energy, the heat normally escapes off your head. So when you have a cap on, <laughs> you get overheated pretty darn quickly. But um, I enjoy things like that and, and uh, making up the foreign languages. And I just think it's uh, the thing where I clap my cords like that is something that not a lot of people can do. And when it gets pitched down, it sounds neat. Because a lot of times when guys try to be low and tough, when they get pitched down, it sounds all retarded. Yeah, you know, it yeah. sounds really like, no, I'm really stupid. So um, that's something that I'm kind of iconically known for. But So anytime I have some of this evil, wicked, mean, and bad, and nasty, um, I prefer that rather than being, oh, 
hello, I'm Nancy Drew. Hi, we're here at Castle Malloy. And I'm, I mean, I liked it. I really appreciate being Nancy Drew for that many games. But um, I kind of get off being somebody that's not who I really am, you know. <laughs> well, Lonnie, this has been absolutely amazing. I uh, re- really enjoyed this interview. And I was just wondering oh, now. thank you. Where, where can our listeners kind of find out about your work and um, check out some of your stuff? Well, I do have a webpage, LonnieManella.com. My business is Audio Gods with a Z on the end. And um, I'm on YouTube. You can look me up by my name. I have a playlist and there's a bunch of trailers. And like I said, the Queen's Corgi and I was the voice of the Pandora, uh, the world of Avatar, Disney, all those clips are there that might be more amusing for somebody to find. And I really appreciate it. I've had a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. On this week's show, why Nintendo rejected a new F-Zero game. The most hilarious Doom clone ever. We celebrate the triumphs of the nerds with Robert Crinsley. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our wonderful mates at Bitmap Books. They've actually just released their biggest project to date, coming in at 652 pages, a guide to Japanese role-playing games, covering the entire history of the genre from 1982 to 2020. It actually sold out this first weekend on sale, but they are going to be reprinting it, and you can find out more and pre-order at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour Podcast, episode number 283, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And great to have you joining us for another decap session all about retro video games and technology. And that's what this show is about, and we cover all kinds of things that remind us of being kids. You know, it could be unwrapping your Sega Mega Drive at Christmas. It could be those endless summers, going to your friends' houses and playing on their ZX Spectrums and Commodore 64s. Or it could be the launch of Windows 95. I mean, you know, we cover all that kind of stuff here. And I think it's fair to say, I mean, we were just chatting before we recorded then. Well, outside of doing this show, we like to consume other media. I don't know about you guys, but when I'm not doing the show, I spend most of my time, you know, YouTube on in my office watching LGR and Angry Video Game Nerd, you know, all my favorite YouTubers to cover what we talk about pretty much. And also watching retro technology and gaming documentaries as well, so so many brilliant ones out there. You know, there's actually a Twitch channel called uh, Video Game Documentaries, I think, and it just shows video game documentaries 24 hours. And it, oh, well. it's, it's weird because sometimes you come across it and it's like, a deluxe pain tutorial for the Amiga in it. It's like 30 viewers watching it. But, um, you know, I was looking back at some of my favourite ones the other day, and uh, From Candy with Ian Lee is still one of my favourite kind of video game documentaries because it just covers so much, and he talks to absolutely everyone, and it was kind of made in a time when video game documentaries weren't that big. I'm very similar to what Dan was just saying. I just find myself pretty much every single night of my life, probably the past 10 years now, just watching YouTube. And it's like you say, you, you watch these content creators, but a lot of the time you are watching the history of video games and systems and computers. Not not just, you know, we all watch ABGM and stuff like that, but, you know, like you say, you catch yourself watching Games Historian, who we've had on the stuff and LDR, and actually learning about these things from these, and, and like you say, they're documentaries, you know. They're not yeah, getting Kim Justice like is good. Kim Justice, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely, 100%, yeah. And Slopes as well, he's really good with it. And today we're actually going to be going, you know, way before YouTube, 10 years before YouTube was even thought of. 
and talking to someone who I remember as a teenager watching this um, incredible three-part documentary that was on Channel 4 back in 1996. And this was a show called Triumph of the Nerds. Now, I know you're a fan of this as well, Ravi. We've spoken about it before. Oh, yeah, absolutely love it. And, you know, he had absolutely everybody on it. Like, you know, you've got all the Microsoft guys there. You've got... um, Steve Jobs there as well, all the Apple guys. You've got like Douglas Adams as well. It's an, an amazing insight to look look back at when, you know, actually the companies they were big, they were huge back then. But um, it was the launch of Windows ninety five, so it was just before the kind of global domination was uh, starting. And oh, it's just amazing. It's kind of a great documentary. And you know, our guest Rob Crinsley, he's he's covered so much and. He's interviewed some of the best people in the video game and in the computer world. Like, you can't get bigger than Steve Jobs, can you, and uh, Bill Gates? Yeah, and I mean, I remember watching Triumph of the Nerds. Um, and I mean, you talk 1996, and, you know, I, I remember recording it on videotape, but it wasn't like now where you jump on Netflix and binge watch it right through. You had to wait till next week for the next part of it. And before YouTube and that kind of thing, there wasn't really much TV coverage of the history of computers. So I found it really interesting. And it was, um, you know, the first time I'd heard about a lot of these things. And you're right, he did actually capture it at the perfect time. Because you're talking mid-90s, a lot of the guys that kind of started the microcomputer revolution, you know, it's up to um, Ed Roberts, you know, the, the guy maybe all there in here who was still alive at that point. So a lot of those guys were still around then. And, you know, he could interview them from something that, even though it was only about 15 years later, that felt like such an eternity in technology because of how far things had come on from, like, the Apple One and the Altair to the launch of Windows 95. I mean, it was a massive change in that decade and a half. And also, a lot of the people have passed that were on the yeah. documentary. You know, Steve Jobs, you've got Paul Allen as well, uh, Lee Felsenstein, a lot of people that we've had on the podcast, actually. Well, Lee Felsenstein's still alive, we'll just put that out there. Oh, yeah, 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 no, no, I, was, I wasn't doing a list of people. <laughs> John Kelly as well. <laughs> yeah, just but you're right, though, Steve Farmer, you know. Well, you're right, though, because, um, I mean, Bob was actually, he was one of the members of the Homebrew Computer Club, and we did an episode with Lee Felsenstein, who was, you know, the, the organiser of and the club back in the day. But also, he was an employee number 12 at Apple. He was a very early employee. And you'll hear how, uh, actually, they offered him uh, shares in the company instead of paying him originally, and he turned it down. He said, I'd rather have a salary instead, which um, I imagine he probably kicks himself over today. But also, he ran one of the most, um, you could say, powerful columns in technology back then. He did the, uh, the gossip column in InfoWorld magazine. And then also made a documentary later on after trying to the nerds called Nerd 2.01, and that was kind of a you know, 1998 documentary looking back at the history of the internet, back to the ARPANET days and everything, so you know, he's a really interesting guy, and you'll also hear a little anecdote in here about how um, how Bill Gates told a bit of a fib as well about a story involving a voucher that was <laughs> quite interesting. So, you know, these people are like legendary status, like, yeah. you know, people probably do business schools on Steve Jobs. <laughs> you know, there's so many films that have come out, so to actually get somebody's opinion that's sat down with him and met him over this whole period of time, it's a really unique view. And, you know, we ask him about the movies that have been released and the best kind of interpretation and try and get, you know, the, the truth behind it, really. 
Yeah, I mean, you bear in mind that, you know, Steve Jobs hired and fired Bob Cringley several times from Apple. I think about three times, actually, so he knows him very well. So, like you said, it's good to kind of get someone's opinion and stories directly from someone who was there at the time. So, uh, yeah, I'm really excited for this week's guest. And, you know, someone who I still regularly watch Client of the Nerds. It's on YouTube, and for people who haven't watched it, I'll put it in our show notes. I probably revisit that documentary at least once a year, you know, still find it really interesting to look back on. So it's going to be a really interesting insight to um, those early days in Silicon Valley with our special guest, Robert Cringley. He'll be coming up in around 20 minutes from now. Now, lots of new stories to get through this week. Let's jump straight in with a Nintendo story. You're fun of Best of Zero, Joe. I am. I, would, I wouldn't say, like, oh, my God, it's one of my favorite games of all time. But, you know, I've played them all, and I had them all growing up as well. But, yeah, we've not had one. Gosh, 15, 16 years since we had F-Zero, is it, is it GX for the GameCube? I think was the last one. Well, there was meant to be a new one that was pitched to Nintendo. Now, I don't know about you, when I play F-Zero, I've always kind of found the, I don't know if you could say the unrealism of it, quite fun. You know, the fact that it's, um, it's not a realistic kind of simulation. It's yeah. very over the top, it's otherworldly. But it turns out that a, uh, a company was actually pitching an ultra-realistic F-Zero game for the Switch, that Nintendo said no to. Yeah, so this comes from Giles Goddard, um, who is kind of like Nintendo royalty from back in the day. He, you know, he helped develop Star Fox and Stunt Race FX for the SNES and worked on loads and loads and loads of other games. Um, and, he, you know, former Argonaut. With Jess Fan and those guys, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, his new company... Well, they're probably not a new company now, and I'm going to pronounce this wrong. It's Chuhei Lab, I think it's called. They pretty much approached Nintendo. I'm not too sure when this was, uh, but this is in a recent interview that he's done that he said that this happened, and essentially made a demo for a hyper-realistic F-Zero, and pretty much thought this should be the way F-Zero goes, because we've not seen F-Zero in, you know, 15, 16 years, and Nintendo turned them down, you know, which I think is quite sad, but apparently the reason is is because Nintendo say it's actually really hard for them to bring the classic Nintendo IPs into the modern world, from the retro world, which, I, you know, and that's why they focus on new IPs. But to me, like, I kind of get, I get it, it's an explanation, but I'm, sh- I'm sure they're milking a lot of old IPs recently. You know, you know, we've seen about a million Pokemon games, and I get it, they're super, super popular, and they haven't been an F-Zero for a long time. But, yeah, the hyper-realistic thing, you know, apparently the direction they're going in was, was like, F-Zero cars, they're like hover cars, aren't they? And you were actually going to have control of, like, the four, there was going to be four, like, hover pads on the bottom of the car, and, like, that's how you drove the car, and obviously if you smashed into other races and smashed into, your, you know, into the side and stuff like that, if you broke or damaged your hover, you know, the hover, whatever you want to call them, the, what would you call them? The things that make it hover. The things that make it hover. <laughs> that's one the of these, well, yeah, that's the technical term. If you smash the two on the left side, then your car would flip to the right because <laughs> because the car isn't balanced anymore, you know, or if you smash the front right one, the car would veer off and stuff like that. So it was, like, super-duper realistic. And I think, you know, I, I understand where they were going with that, like, it's a new idea, but like you say, that isn't F-Zero. F-Zero's kind of, like, got kind of comic book feel to it, like that really over-the-top, kind of, like, superhero kind of feel to it, like, you know, you, you're driving, like, a 1,000 miles an hour, it was never a simulator. It was never a simulator, you know, down these super, you know, super high-tech cities and stuff like that on these pipes and, you know, through underground sewers and stuff like that. So, 
it was a strange take. So maybe that's why Nintendo, maybe Nintendo were like, you know, well, let's give them the nice answer. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's def- definitely interesting. But you can watch the whole interview on uh, Game Explain. Yeah, it's uh, like a video podcast, isn't it? Yeah, well, I'll try and get him on it. It's a really yeah. interesting watch. Yeah, I, I think, to be honest, I think Ravi's asked him a couple of times before. Um, and we've just, you know, diaries haven't ma- ma- matched up and stuff like that. But we'll try oh, again. I'm always sniffing around Argonaut. <laughs> 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 Outside the building. <laughs> you know, I think you're right as well, because, I mean, to me, simulation kind of experiences are not very Nintendo. They're more arcade games, aren't they? Mm. Yeah, 100%. So it wouldn't feel like a match to kind of Nintendo style. And, you know, playing that kind of game on the Switch, especially when you've got a license like F-Zero. And I think it is admirable that Nintendo are actually quite wary about, maybe a bit too wary sometimes, about bringing yeah. back their franchises from the past. Because, I mean, if you get it wrong, we've talked about it on the show before, there are a lot of, you know, new games that come out that kind of trade on famous games from the past that end up being crap and then everyone just gets annoyed at it because you're playing with people's memories yeah there is that aspect so you know you, you're probably right it probably was that it probably it, you know probably is what they said it is was there a F-Zero for the Saturn? no it's strictly Nintendo so yeah so ah, okay. the original F-Zero was for it was a release game for Super Nintendo then you got F-Zero X for the N64 and you got F-Zero GX, I believe it was called, for the GameCube. And then there was an arcade one called AX, and then there was Maximum Velocity for the Game Boy Advance, and then we've had nothing since then. So, but this was pitched for the Switch and the 3DS, so I imagine it was a couple of years ago, because the 3DS, is the 3DS still, no, the 3DS is still, um, I've got, I've got a feeling it's just been discontinued recently. Yeah. Uh, maybe back in the last year. It's or a little bit too modern for us, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. We did actually play the original F-Zero by accident in my house the other week, I think, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Yeah, I did my, 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 my sequestration of ROMs that are all titled incorrectly. <laughs> <laughs> trying, to, trying to play Mortal Kombat. <laughs> so, uh, great fun. But I think, yeah, if we're going to revisit that franchise, it just needs to be, you know, what the fans want is like a yeah. speaked up version of the original, really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, 100%. Give us that Nintendo. Now, speaking of uh, Nintendo franchises that <laughs> made it onto other platforms, what about this? A Dr. Mario clone for the Amstrad CPC. Now, this is called Dr. Roland. And I don't know if you guys have watched the video to this. I mean, were you guys fans of uh, Dr. Mario back in the day? Because it was quite a unique Mario game, being a puzzler and Mario being a, a doctor. I know you like all these kind of Minsky spurbles and like uh, puzzle yeah. games. And bubble bubble, but I I can never understand what was going on. Box of Mario for me, it was massively confusing. You know what? I'm going to agree with Ravi there. I didn't play Doctor Mario until I say about six or seven years ago when I picked it up for the Super Nintendo, and I was the same. I never understood what was going on. Now I'm not going to sit here and explain the rules to the game to Ravi. Um, match the colours at the end of the capsules. Yeah, you match the colours at the end of the capsules. But if you don't know that, until you sit down and play it, you are like, what the hell is going on? But once you sit down and play it, it's quite straightforward. But yeah, this just, this couldn't say copyright infringement anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dr. Roland, dear. Well, I, I, I think I know why it's called Dr. Roland, because um, Roland Perry is a guy that we've been after for the podcast, and uh, he's a guy behind the CPC, uh, works under Alan Sugar, so I guess this is kind of like they've just converted Mario to become Roland Perry. <laughs> yeah, that would make sense. As well. well, I mean, this is, it's got quite an interesting story, this game. So if I'll, I'll put a link um, to the video. You can watch it. It's your gameplay. You can actually download the game as well. Um, I've got an Amstrad CPC recently with a broken keyboard. So I want to get that sorted. I mean, there is a whole library of, you know, recent 
Amstrad CPC ports and games, you know, like the, the ones from Batman Group. And they do this thing called the, um, the CPC Retro Dev, which is like a competition where all the community come together. I think the run is once a year, and they submit games. And this game was actually a submission for the last one in 2020 that got disqualified. Now, the reason is because it's nothing to do with the game. You know, the game itself is really good, but they actually put out all of the games as a compilation tape, Oh, and they okay. said, you know, that really this is too close to Dr. Mario and Nintendo might end up causing them issues and, you know, the entire compilation then might be pulled. So that's the reason that it didn't make it onto there. Um, as of yet, it is still available to download. And the thing is about Nintendo, I'm not sure how far they kind of go into it. Would they be bothered about a game that was on I, I guess, the Amstrad CPC? the assets aren't the same. But I'm also thinking they should have called it Dr. Sugar. That would have been a... Good one. <laughs> I, I, I know you say the assets couldn't be the same, but I'm pretty sure they're the same assets. I could be wrong, but it does look really familiar. Like if you showed me that and just said it was Dr. Mario, at a glance, I'd go, oh yeah. But what's cool is, I mean, it's actually been ported to a system that didn't have a game like that before. Which, yeah. You know, it's kind of, kind of a great thing about these kind of um, dev jams, you know, where developers get together and they, they port often, you know, it's you know, ports of arcade games or stuff that was on other platforms, but I think it's just um, they don't want to tempt the wrath of Nintendo, which is uh, yeah, the wrong dog to tease, I think, in, uh, in terms of retro games, isn't it, often? So um, it is out there on its own. I've got to give it a download. And, you know, we, we spoke about this on the show before, the, the kind of untapped potential of the Amstrad CPC machines just seems to be getting more realised as time goes on, doesn't it? There's tons of titles coming out. It's really good to see, actually. Uh, it's a scene that, you know... I know, I know there's a lot of love for the Amstrad, but I didn't really see that there'd be much titles coming out in the future, and uh, I'm just really happy that they are. And, uh, you know, it seems to be, like, focused in Europe, and uh, that's where a lot of the stuff's coming out. But I remember when a lot of the Americans came over, um, Adam Kirillik, when he came over to play Expo, he was like, give me that Amstrad stuff. So, um, I can see it might be growing there, and interest in America as well. You know, in America, it seems to be the GX4000, you know, the consoleized version of the Amstrad CPC that they all tend to be interested in, I think. Oh, you just buying up all the games for that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I don't know why this is just because, I mean, obviously, consoles were bigger in America than, you know, home computers were here, you know. We, we more had micros, they had you know, the NES and Atari and that kind of thing. So, I think for a lot of, particularly YouTubers, it's kind of an untapped platform for them to cover, you know, that side of the pond. So, I think there's definitely interest from... Uh, from that side of it, but um, I, I've actually seen an Amstrad um, GX4000. I think I saw one in a game shop in Lincoln, and it was boxed in there probably about two years ago, and they only wanted about 60 quid for it. Yeah, right. I remember they were selling sealed ones for 30 quid on eBay. I mean, I'm actually Yeah, definitely shut up, but um, yeah, when I get my Amstrad CPC computer working, then... Definitely a huge library of recent ports and games I want to check out on that. So if you want to read more about that and I give it a download, I'll put the link in our show notes. Now, we do a lot of first-person shooters on this show. I mean, we've all been fans of FPS games for many years now. Obviously, Doom was the one that changed it all, really, when that came out back in 1993. And there is an article here on uh, CBR.com talking about this um, new retro-inspired shooter that is probably like nothing you've played before. This is Fashion Police Squad. This sounds right up your street, Dan. <laughs> Been a fashionista. Exactly. Yeah, so um, obviously back in the day, Doom clones, as they were called, you know, we, we, 
you know, Henderson and Kane, as we know, as first-person shooters, but this is an actual Doom clone. You know, it, it looks and kind of plays a little bit like the original Doom, you know, from 1993. So this is currently in its beta form, uh, which you can sign up to play, and it's due to come out on PC. I don't know, I think it's just PC sometime next year, it says. But this looks really wacky and really funny. So Fashion Police Squad, you run around um, the city of Trendopolis, essentially whipping people into fashion. Um, so, so, so the enemies are like people wearing baggy suits and people wearing sandals of socks and stuff like that. People who dress like us. People who dress like us, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and they're going to be the worst judges of that fashion. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very in the, in the kind of like, you know, the vein of like Super Noah's Ark and stuff like that and Chex Quest, you know, just that funny kind of, you know, gameplay. But it's, it's non-violent as well, isn't it? You're not, it, you're not going around you're killing them. Ki- you're not killing them, no. You, you use like your belt of justice to whip them into fashion. And then you've got like a, your main gun is a shotgun that uh, is called the two die for, but that's spelt dive and like it's and it, it looks like a, a, a singer sewing machine as well. Yeah, you could use um, yeah. <laughs> a sewing machine as a machine gun as well. And essentially, you know, as you shoot people with these weapons, they they you know their clothes fit them better. This, this might that. be a bit too early for um for Joe, but do you remember on Channel Four there was a show? I think it was Davina McCall. It was called Fashion Beast. No. I think it was, and she I just ran around and shout at people, going, "You, you look rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take you to the shops." It was really, really well, aggressive. Well, this, this sounds like the Doom clone of that, <laughs> that TV show. And you know what? This is quite funny because for me, I've been on a proper Doom hype this last couple of months. I played through like Doom One, Two, and Three, and Doom Sixty Four, and the, uh, the most recent one, Doom Eternal. And then I was, like, looking for other Doom clones, you know, like Hexen and Blood and stuff like that. So this is probably right up my street at the moment. So you'll probably find me playing this if you come over any soon on the yeah, day. I, I guess they might update it when the styles update as well. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like, oh, flares are back. <laughs> flares are back, so they're going to put flares in there. That'd be quite funny. But, yeah, you know, it's just a little indie game that looks quite fun. And, you know, the graphics have got those proper throwback, you know, 2D sprites and the 3D you know, environment, it just looks like a lot of fun, really. I love that when you, you know, shoot with your, your gun that actually changes their clothes, buy your clothes at them, you know, get them looking yeah. more stylish, you get a message up on the screen that says here, you know, when a sandals and socks wearing dork transforms, the game explains that he's now dapper. <laughs> it's, uh, it does look like yeah, loads of fun. Again, very tongue-in-cheek. Just looks like a bit of a giggle this game as well. So uh, I, I do like, you know, that kind of retro FPS 5 anyway, so it does look like yeah. a nice different take on it, doesn't it? Uh, speak, speaking of games that we used to play back in the day that maybe we don't so much anymore, Flash games. Are you guys fun of Flash games back in the day? Yeah, yeah, I used to love them. Like, the early internet for me was just Flash games, and, you know, you'd also have Flash animations, and before you could get video and stuff, well, you had that real video that was not good. You had Newgrounds as well, which was mm. just an absolutely... Amazing site, full of uh, completely sick stuff. Um, badger, 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 badger. Yeah, badger, badger, badger was quite late. I don't know if you remember uh, some of the earlier stuff. So they had like all your base. Um, yeah, yeah. They had um, uh, Numa Numa dance as well. Yeah, Ultimate Showdown of Ultimate Destiny. 
I, yeah. I was that kind of like, Thomas, I'm a little bit younger than you guys. You know, Newgrounds for me was every day at school mm. on Newgrounds. As soon as you got home on Newgrounds, just trying to watch like Dragon Ball Z videos on there and, <laughs> and uh, like you say, playing all the Flash games and stuff like that. But it's being recognised, isn't it, by the, um, the GDC. Mm, which the Developers cool. Conference. Yeah. Yeah, and this is, um, obviously, today, we look at many franchises that are around today. I mean, Among Us is a big game that everyone's playing at the moment, and the guys behind that, they play, They actually made the um, Henry Stickman games that were really popular oh. Flash games back in the day. You've got stuff like uh, Super Meat Boy and Hollow Knight. They originally started, you know, as Flash games. They started on Super Meat Boy. Well, Meat Boy was on Newgrounds, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Newgrounds game, yeah. Yeah, so this is, um, Newgrounds is still going today, but obviously it's kind of, uh, you know, not Flash anymore, you know, being that Flash has been discontinued. Um, but the site creator, Tom Fulp, he's actually receiving a special honour at this year's Game Developers' Choice Awards as well. So the thing that really, you know, because Flash, for a while, it got a bit of a bad reputation, particularly when mobile phones started coming out, and we all remember, you know, Steve Jobs was on a mad yeah. mission to kind of destroy Flash, wasn't he, back in the... Well, well, it, was, it was really insecure as well. Yeah. Like, you know, the amount of update your flash and then you'd update it off a dodgy site and then something else would come onto it. But Newgrounds always seemed to create it really well. And mm. I think that was the best thing. You went on there and you knew that, like, there'd be some decent stuff, there'd be some funny stuff. And it was also picked out really well. It wouldn't just be random rubbish. There was, there was mm. some hilarious stuff. Oh, God. There's one that stands out when I was a kid, uh, the film Hurricane, and they did a flash version of that. And I, th- I think the kid's like, I love you, Hurricane, and he just beats him <laughs> up in prison. <laughs> it's just stuck with me that. It is good, because I mean, really, the, the idea of this award they're giving him or recognising him is really to say that, you know, it, it was a breeding ground and kind of a precursor to the indie game scene that we've got today, mm. you know, these Flash games. Yeah, so. it's the Pioneer Award he's receiving. Okay, yeah, well, I mean, that makes sense, because, you know, these kind of, especially back then, you didn't really find these games before online stores became yeah. available. You weren't getting these games on the N64 and the GameCube and that kind of thing. It was just these little games that you play on the internet. Yeah, absolutely, on your, on your lunch break at school. Or <laughs> <laughs> you guys ever, ever tried to code anything in Flash? Um, yes, we, 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 probably you should ask that, there was about six or seven of us who really got into Newgrounds at school around 2003, 2004, and we had Flash on our computers at school, so we used to spend our lunch breaks, you know, because you could go into, like, the IT suite, you know, I'm old enough that my school only had one IT room, <laughs> you go into the IT room and, you know, to do your homework, essentially, but we would all make our own Newgrounds animations, and we were all trying to make, like, um... Oh, I can't remember the name of the actual... It was a Stickman show. Yeah, we, they, we, the Fighting Stickman. Like, yeah, the Fighting Stickman. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, we'd spend hours and hours and hours trying to make these videos. Um, you know, in hindsight, I was terrible at it. But one or two of my friends were really, really good at it. I, I would make websites and uh, flash websites. You'd have to recompile it every time you had to kind of upload it again. Yeah, and they became a bit of a nightmare. But I do remember when MySpace came out, people would replace their whole MySpace with like Flash. Yeah. <laughs> it would be like, wow, this yeah. guy's elite. It was tough to do though. Yeah. I do remember Flash websites. I had mates that would make them. And you, you know, particularly intros. You go on, and there'd be like an animation at the start of the website, and you click click to enter, and you go into it. 
I used an Amiga on the internet until around 2001. So when I saw that, <laughs> not having Flash, Flash didn't work on the Amiga. I was you all didn't like, the loading bar. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so to me, it was a world of pain. Um, but, you know, after that, yeah, I mean, even though it was a brief period, probably from around, you know, 98 to about 2008, that decade, really. The early 2000s, I think, were kind of the sweet spot for Flash games, but it was definitely uh, you know, a point in time that it is nice to see some recognition and kind of what it did for the industry, I think. so. Uh, and there are actually a lot of those Flash games and old animations. You can play archive.org. They've actually archived a huge collection of those as well. If you want to play them in kind of a little uh, a sandbox environment as well, that's a lot safer than installing Flash on your modern machine. So I, I remember it. Shockwave was another one. Shockwave. Macromedia. Yeah, Macromedia. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there was, I remember Habbo Hotel ran on Shockwave. <laughs> I mean, back then a lot of people used to think it was really bloated, but, you know, compared to <laughs> the way the internet is today, probably very streamlined compared to many modern websites, I think. Now, we've had a survey running for a week now, after a bit of a false start the week before, and I just want to say a huge thank oh, you to everyone. So they say, finish the show, is crap. Uh, no, actually, <laughs> we, we've had some lovely comments on there. I think at the time of recording this, we got about 460 comments, um, people filled in the survey, which, uh, you know, I think for any survey, getting that kind of response in, um, well, under a week, really, I mean, most people only accessed it on Friday, didn't they? So in about four or five days, that's incredible. But obviously, the more people we get filling this in, it is going to help us shape this show and uh, make it better for you and also help us attract advertisers to the show in the future as well. So it is really, really useful um, if you guys can go onto our website, theretrohour.com, and uh, leave your thoughts on our survey there. It'll only take you around five minutes to do it, and you could win £100 of retro gaming goodies as well. So £100 to spend on retro gaming goodies of your choice. You know what some people have been saying, though, actually? Some people have actually got in touch with us and said, I've filled the survey in, guys, and I'm really sorry, but I love the show the way it is now, so I haven't really been too critical, which is fine. That helps, you know, because, like... Um, Every kind of stat, like just seeing the age groups and mm. stuff like that, really helps us kind of work it all out. So even if you're if you're scoring the show really high, that's fantastic feedback as well. Yeah, means we're on the right path. And then there's been some people have actually given us some great constructive criticism. You know, stuff that we hadn't realised before that we'll definitely take on board. And also, and there's a little section on there about which systems you'd like to see us cover more in the future. So obviously, when we're looking at guests for the show and new stories to cover, it is really, really valuable to find out which kind of stuff we should be talking about. Yeah, that's that's probably the best kind of feedback that we're getting at the moment because we can look at exactly the systems like, oh, there's loads of people into that one, actually. Yeah. Let's, let's kind of look in that direction and it, and it helps us shift the show and kind of know who to ask for interviews. Yeah, so if you've got a spare five minutes, it honestly it's so valuable to us. It'll take you only a couple of minutes to fill it in, and you could win £100 to spend on retro gaming goodies. You'll find the survey right now at theretrohour.com. Now, this will be a good time to give a shout to our wonderful patrons who, of course, keep this podcast going each week. Now, recently I've been looking at um, quite a few different podcasts, and I listen, yeah, now that we, we do the show remotely, over the last 12 months I've become... <laughs> a bit of a, a nerd in in regards to how podcasts actually work. And I listen to podcast engineering shows and watch videos about microphones and things like that. But there is really, podcasting's changed quite a lot since we started doing this show. There are kind of like two tiers to podcasting, really. You've got like the big boys, like your, you know, your Joe Rogans and your Spotify's and your Amazons. And then you've got the other side of podcasting, which is us guys, three guys who do it off their own back as a passion project. We're not earning millions off doing this, uh, but really we've got a Patreon just so we can keep the show independent and you can help us out with the running cost of it, really. 
it's mad to think we're actually up there with the huge big ones. I was looking at the charts the other day and it was like Giant Bomb, IGN, Gardner's Question Time, all of all of the kind of those bastards. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and, and we're kind of up there with them and we're just recording from our bedrooms and, you know, with you guys' support we've been able to do that and it's just fantastic to kind of keep this show going. I really didn't think when we started this that we'd be hitting 300 and, uh, you know, when Dan, Dan suggested we do a podcast when we were walking through the meadow. Skipping <laughs> <laughs> through the daisies. Skipping through the daisies, I thought. I didn't even know what a podcast was when he asked me to come on. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm up for that. <laughs> it is mad, though. You think, you know, when we had that conversation, God, what was that, 2015? Um, I think we were in Amsterdam, actually, weren't we? We've been to the um, Amiga. 30th anniversary show out there. Yeah. I thought we should try doing a podcast. I think we did one episode with Alistair Brimble. We thought we'd put it out there to see how well it does. Maybe we'll do two or three of them. Uh, and here we are almost 300 episodes later. And like you said, you know, the fact that we're so proud. And you guys should be as well, you know, for getting us there. You know, the fact that we make it into the top 10 in the Apple podcast charts a lot of the time. And we're up there with, you know, IGN and companies like that, which I think is just mind-blowing. So thank you so much for um, supporting our podcast and listening each week. And also, if you can find, you know, spare a couple of quid to throw in the tip jar and help us with the running costs, that is also massively appreciated. And you get some nice perks to help, and is that danger? Oh, you always pick me. <laughs> <laughs> you do. You do get some really, really good perks. We like we like to give back. So um, one of my favourite ones uh, that we give back is the After Hours podcast, which is essentially an extra episode a month where we don't we don't interview anybody or anything like that. We essentially go in kind of like behind the scenes and, you know, we talk a little bit more about ourselves and we also, you know, we review things. We talk about our favourite consoles. We've recently been doing our top five consoles, uh, top five games on those consoles. And then also uh, a series we've been doing on the After Hours is kind of reviewing years in retro mm. gaming, haven't we? We've recently gone and done the, the late 90s and now we're going to the early 2000s, which has been really, really fun. Uh, we also do a Hangout, a Patreon Google Hangout, usually is it the last Sunday or the first Sunday of the month, Dan? <laughs> Whenever we can fit it in. It's, it's, always, it's, it's always one a month. It's always one a month, but that's really, really fun. Um, I usually end up spending money online while we're doing it, buying retro games. Because people mention things, don't they? People mention like, things. Oh, yeah, I'll look at them you know, when we first kind of first started doing that, we thought, oh, like, one or two people will come. But, you know, every week without fail, like, you know, 20, 30 people join. And it's, you know, people come on. You don't have to talk. You can just listen. You can just watch. But, you know, we kind of, we, we don't just talk about retro games. We talk about retro films, retro tech, mobile phones, anything, really. You know, MP3 kind of, players last time. MP3 think. players last time, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then also, of course, anybody who donates to us, um, they do get the show without the adverts. Sometimes you get it a couple of days early, sometimes you get it about five days early, sometimes you get it a day early, and you also get a shout-out in the Hall of Fame. Um, everybody gets that who donates as well, which is, you know, really awesome. I think you've about covered it all there, Jeff. You know, actually, yeah. like, <laughs> looking, looking at the survey respondents, some people were saying that we enjoy the news, we enjoy the interview that you do, but it would be nice to hear you guys talking about your memories and what you've been up to and what you've been collecting. That is the After Hours podcast. That is the After Hours. Yeah. That is the After Hours. We do, we kind of like, we start it with that and then we do what we're going to do. So talk about a year or review a game, a few games or something like that. But we kind of talk about our last kind of month in gaming, don't we? And uh, yeah. a lot of the time it's longer than an hour. Oh, yeah. God, yeah. We don't limit ourselves. It's unedited as well, isn't it? The After Hours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's one guy the other day, I actually saw one of his survey 
a guy who responded to the survey said it would be nice to hear you instead of doing um, a guest to do maybe an episode about a console, maybe a, a Mega Drive special or something. Again, the After Hours podcast, you know, we're yeah. it's like system deep dives, don't we, where we yeah. do an hour and a half, two hours about the, we're doing the Super Nintendo, I think, next, so loads of memories and our top five games on the system, so um, I think you'll enjoy that show, it's actually kind of vibe, and uh, there were a couple of people who I've seen survey respondents saying, uh, you know, it, it would be nice to have the show without adverts, again, backers on Patreon, cost for a cup of coffee once a month. You get it without the ads, and you get it a bit early as well. And, of course, you're going to mention a big thank you in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. And let's give a big shout to our latest backers. Hello to Englishman Dan. Raul. Charlotte Woolley. Richard Yates. And Adrian Nelson. It all backed us on Patreon. We massively appreciate your support, guys. And if you'd like to do the same, you'll find it all on our website at theretrohour.com. Now, we look to give support to retro gaming community projects and people that are keeping the retro scene alive and each week at the moment we are bigging up retro gaming shops all around the world so we want to know where do you buy your retro games and systems from have you got a shop maybe in your town or your city that you go to that you know are run by an independent shop that are run by passionate people and we want to give them some free publicity on the show and give them a shout out so every week we do our retro gaming shop of the week and this week we're going to Canada. Yeah, so uh, we received a tweet from StuLek52, and uh, Stu, I love his description, tall Glaswegian person living in Calgary. <laughs> and he says, um, my local retro game store here in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, it's called Video Game Trader, and uh, the folks that work there greet you by name. Uh, they know their stuff, and they also reserve stuff for you. Um, wow. So as soon as they get it in, uh, they're absolutely fantastic. And this place is apparently been running for 25 years, which is pretty awesome. It's the biggest um, game video game retailer in Calgary, and it specialises in rare, retro, new and used games from all of the different generations. Well, that explains it because I've just been on their website, and they do sell their uh, their you know, their games and stuff on the website. And the 25 years does explain it because of, on the retro page, they have 350 pages, not 350 listings, 350 pages of listed retro games. And each page has about 50 games on there, which just kind of shows how big <laughs> this shop is, which is awesome, you know, to see that they're kind of like, you know, that's not to say that they're getting it or anything like that, but to see that they're thriving, they've got that amount of stock, and it's what market hit is here in the UK sometimes where, you know, you go into a shop and they've got a master system, you know. <laughs> it, it looks amazing as well. Like, the, the thing, as soon as I saw an image of this place, I thought Blockbuster. And yeah. The logo's very Blockbuster, isn't it? And the shop decal. Yeah, and the kind of blue that you get on it. And, and the, even the layout of the games, how they're like kind of laid out like videos were back in the days. Uh, really, really amazing. But for 25 years to be kind of doing retro games and doing that thing. Before it was retro. Before yeah. it was retro and like just looking here at some of the pictures Joe would go mad here. Look at the amount of copies of um, Nintendo NES titles. Know, you know, like four copies of Super Mario free box. My wife would kill me if I went into the shop. <laughs> you know to me there's um, an image Ravi pulled off their website that he shared with us and obviously you can check out their website and the Facebook and see all this but the, the window display the amount of box systems they've got when you when you walk up to that. I mean, imagine seeing that just on the street lit up at night. I, I, I think I'd float across the road and get stuck to the window. Yeah, I think that's actually, um, that's actually like, 
their display that they used to go to shows. So they also go out to trade shows and they kind of sell all of the stuff when shows are going on and they've, they've got a stand. They look like they're really established and, uh, you know, a, a fantastic resource. And I was thinking Dominic Diamond's actually from Calgary, isn't it? So he needs yeah, to pay, pay a little visit to this place and, uh, you know, do some Games Master reviews <laughs> live there. That would be an awesome hookup. Yeah, so a Video Game Trader, our retro gaming store of the week. You can check out their website at videogametrader.ca. And if you've got a place that you go, let us know about it on our socials. You can tweet us at RetroHourUK or drop us an email, show at theretrohour.com. And let's keep these independent video game retailers going. We'd love to give them a shout out on the show. Right, then next, we are going to be celebrating, I can't believe it's actually 25 years since this documentary came out, back in 1996. Triumph of the Nerds with our special guest, Robert Cringley, is next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Now, we're so excited to talk to our guest this week. He's a journalist and author, a documentary maker as well. You know him from classic documentaries like Triumph of the Nerds. Nerd 2.01, and of course, the Lost Steve Jobs interview that we need to talk about as well. Welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, Robert Cringely. Hello, Bob. Hello. Pleased to meet you. Yeah, great to have you joining us. Now, uh, before we get into all that, we're actually recording from the UK. I was reading that you studied here in Britain as a teenager. I did. I went to, uh, I guess, the equivalent of high school in Liverpool. You know, there was an old boy who had... uh, gone to America and done well, and he gave a scholarship for one boy to go to his old school, and uh, so I won it, and that's what I did. So did your interest in journalism kind of start when you were in Europe? Well, no. I mean, I started as a journalist at age 14, writing obituaries for my local newspaper in America, because it was, uh, I had been delivering the paper and uh, I had to get up early in the morning, and I suddenly realized that if I actually wrote for the paper, I didn't have to get up early in the morning. And <laughs> so they gave me a job, and the first job for almost any reporter in those days was writing obituaries. And I remember my first obituary I wrote, I forgot to mention that the person had died. And uh, wow. that apparently is, is, is a problem, and the widow called up and yelled at me. <laughs> Well, I mean, you've had a very varied career, and then after that, I mean, you moved on, and you were actually um, an early employee of Apple. Yeah. Um, like I read employee, employee number eleven or twelve or something. Well, how did that happen then? How did you end up? How did you end up there? And what was your role at Apple then in those early days? You know, I I came to Apple because I was uh, had been a member of the Homebrew Computer Club, and that's where I met the, the two Steves. And um, you know, at some point, uh, Steve Jobs. They needed some help on a variety of things, and and he asked if I uh, would want to come work with them. And I remember the funny thing was at the time he said, you have to understand, he was, I think, 21, and he had uh, hair all the way down his back, and I think he only ate fruit. And uh, so he said, we don't have much loot, so we'd like to pay you in shares. And uh, I held out for the cash. So, you know, that was my chance to get rich, uh, lost. And uh, so I went to work for Apple, and I worked in hardware engineering for a bit, and I helped Jeff Raskin write the manual for the Apple II. And then I was fired, because not because of anything I did wrong, but just because they ran out of work for me. 
and then I was hired back at Apple. That was in 1977 I started at Apple and mm-hmm. left in 78. And I came back in 80 and was hired to be part of the Lisa group and uh, working with Larry Kessler on the graphical user interface. And then uh, was fired with 40% of the Lisa group uh, in 81 by Steve again. And then uh, came back in 84 and worked on a secret project for Apple and uh, was fired in 85 again by Steve a week before he was fired. So if I just went on holiday, I'd probably still be there. What kept attracting you back to Apple, though? Uh, Steve kept asking me to work for Apple. So, uh, you know, you have to understand, I've been fired from almost every job I've ever had in my life. I think I've only voluntarily left once. And yet there are these multiple employers who've employed me several times. So I guess I must offer some, uh, you know, service or, or, or some usefulness, but apparently I'm such a pain in the ass that eventually they, it's not worth it, so they get rid of me. So you mentioned the uh, Homebrew Computer Club there as well. Was it as legendary as they kind of say, and were there just so many companies and pioneers coming out of it? Well, the Homebrew Club was really odd because uh, it was composed almost entirely of doctors and teenage boys. And the doctors had money and the teenage boys were smart. And so um, it was a peculiar, very egalitarian because it turns out the teenage boys had the knowledge. So you would go in to these meetings and the kids would be teaching the adults. And that was a, a role reversal from most of society in 1977. But everyone was very excited about this new technology and there, there was no internet. There were most of the of the knowledge had to pass from person to person. So groups like this, uh, the Homebrew Computer Club was actually the second personal computer club. The first one was somewhere in New Jersey there was one, and then the Homebrew Club, and which ran for over a decade. And it was it was very exciting. And yes, there were there were companies that came out of it. Very often those companies would show their technology in very early state to the meetings, and I remember, uh, in fact, when I first met uh, uh, Waz and Jobs, they were showing the Apple One, and uh, they had, you know, arrived at the meeting in Waz's Fiat, and it was very joyful, and and they showed this thing, and it, was, it sort of blew people away because it was uh, such a clever design, and it was so cheap by the standards of the era. It's yeah, so we've had um, Lee Selzman spinning on the show before, and he was talking about the fact that there just seemed to be a real kind of energy buzz around yeah. the Homebrew Computer Club. Yeah, did it feel like you were at the start of something that was going to be huge? Well, you know, Lee was the was the leader. And yeah. uh, he's the guy who, who sat up there with the big stick and ran the meetings. And so, yeah, he, he and, and what a great engineer in his own right. You know, the, the computers that Lee designed are legendary. And uh, so that, uh, so yeah, there was a very high standard of uh, knowledge and content. And, uh, and yet at the same time, it was very open and, and uh, embracing, which is unusual sometimes for technology. You know, a lot of times, a lot of really sharp tech guys, at least in those days, were sort of assholes. And it was, it was like a no-asshole zone. So that was, uh, that was unusual in that respect. 
Well, I know that home computers, microcomputers, weren't very affordable in those days. I mean, what was your first home system then, and did you have to outlay a lot of cash for it? Well, it was an Apple One, and Waz made my case. Oh, so it didn't, you know, it was $500, I think it was. It had 4K of RAM. But the, the, the price standard for a computer at that time was generally in the two to $4,000 range for something that wasn't a kit. So it was a very expensive item. It cost as much as a car. And if you'd hung on to the Apple One, it would be worth a lot more today, I imagine. Yeah, it would be worth uh, my Apple One, especially because Waz built my case. So, um, yeah. So, at, you know, it wasn't much of a computer. It wasn't very useful. And the fact that there are as many of them around as there are is probably uh, can be chalked up to the fact that we knew at the time that it was a sort of historical artifact and was kept around for that purpose. Because I've seen them. They have a couple at the Computer History Museum, and they fire them up every now and again. They still run, but there's nothing you can do with them. Well, you've kind of been known as the man who can get the real inside story since the 80s. And um, I was wondering when you first decided you wanted to start covering the computer industry. Well... I started covering the computer industry when it stopped hiring me. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my last uh, my last job in the computer industry was at Adobe Systems. There, I was employee number twenty nine, and I was the original product manager for PostScript. So, uh, and and the original uh, product manager for uh, Adobe Illustrator, which was their first consumer application. Well, obviously, after that, I mean from. From 1987 to 1995, I mean, you wrote the infamous notes from the field gossip column in InfoWorld magazine. I mean, yeah. any kind of strong memories that stand out from your time at InfoWorld? You know, I'll tell you, it, if we if we continue the Apple theme, there was an interesting thing that happened once. There was a there was a guy, it was a man who called up from Apple one day, and he was for some reason wanted to tell me a lot of things, and he told me a lot about product plans. And then he sent me a spreadsheet that had Apple's product uh, roadmap for the next three years on it. And so and this was a time when Apple was considered to be sort of a very leaky company. But the peculiar thing was that we had, and, and, it, and it worked out, it was correct, we had three years of Apple's product plans. And we, we could have written, you know, a three-year story. Uh, but instead, we decided to kind of wait it out and anticipate what was coming next and then and, and, and then get a bunch of, we got like a dozen scoops out of that. And, and, and we knew way in advance what was coming. But we had to do it in such a way that we didn't bust this guy. And that was probably the most exciting experience for me as a journalist because we had all this information that we were playing this this cat and mouse game. So that sort of thing happened. But otherwise, uh, you know, it was a young industry being run still by the founders of the companies, which meant that it was very unprofessional and uh, certainly matched my temperament completely. Well, that column must have uh, given you a lot of sway back then. Um, did you have kind of a lot of power in the industry then? Well, no, I don't think so. What? I, uh, how would How would a journalist have power and how would they use it? Like, were people worried about what you'd write? Yeah, they were worried about what I would write. And and I remember I was single, and I was dating a woman who was in the industry. 
her employer found out that she was dating me, and she almost lost her job just on principle. Wow. And it certainly hobbled her career a bit. But she then changed jobs and didn't tell anyone she ever knew me again. So, <laughs> so I guess it, it sort of hurt my love life a bit. But, you know, I don't know. You know, given that there was a time when people would call you up on the phone and give you three years of data, there were lots of ways to cover these stories. And there was lots of, there were lots of things happening. It was an interesting time. And there were characters. Oh, such characters. They were people. They weren't companies. I've got to ask, Bob, what's kind of the background with the name Robert Cringley? Because I know others have also laid claim to using that as a pen name before. Well, I don't usually like to talk about this, but um, I was, uh, I'm the third Robert Cringley. Uh, mm-hmm. The first Robert Cringley was uh, Rory O'Connor, and the second Robert Cringley was Laurie Flynn, a woman. And, uh, and they did it for 18 months each. Or maybe it was nine months each. I don't know. They did it for some short period of time. And I've been doing it since 1987. So, you know, I think I've got some staying power here. Um, yeah, I think you definitely own it now. Yeah. Well, I literally own it now. I mean, I, I, I won it in U.S. federal court. So uh, my employer at the time, which was InfoWorld or their parent company, you know, of course, fired me. And then... Uh, tried to make me stop doing what I was doing, but I had a contract that allowed me to do it, and they contested that, and it was a very ugly time for a while until I won, in which case they, you know, made nice again. And, and so, you know, my relationship with them is fine to this day, but it's clear that it's my name. It's not their name anymore. Well, you wrote the book, Accidental Empires. Where did the idea come from, and how did you approach it? Uh, well, there was a lack of, I mean, there had been a book, The Fire in the Valley, uh, that had come out, which was about the early history of the semiconductor industry leading into the personal computer, but it stopped at a certain point, and there was a lot of stuff still happening, and I had a unique uh, perspective and a sort of tongue-in-cheek reputation, so I could get away with writing things that other people might not have. So, um, you know, the funny thing is, I, I wouldn't have written that book, except that uh, I had a relative who was dying of cancer, and I had the support. And so I didn't make enough money, so I had to make some more money. And the only thing I needed to do at that time was to then write a book. So I sold a book so I could pay for my relative to live a while longer. And that's why, if you ever read that book, if you look at the uh, at the the dedication, it it says it's for Pammy, who knows we need the money, and uh, and that was who I was referring to. In that book, I mean, it was very insightful, and I know one story in particular that often comes out from that book is the uh, the famous anecdote about Bill Gates and a tub of ice cream. Yeah. Um, what, what what was the story there? And I believe Bill actually answered that, did he? Well, Bill denies it. Bill denied it and denies it to this day. But it's absolutely true, which says something about Bill. You know, he's perfectly willing to lie about this. It was uh, the guy who was behind him in the queue at the store. Who the 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 story is that Bill was in this at this convenience store and he was buying a tub of ice cream 
and he wanted to use a coupon to get it at a lower price. And he was digging around looking for the coupon, and he couldn't find it. And finally, the guy behind him paid the money, the extra money, to get Bill out of the way. And the uh, the guy who did that uh, was an engineer at Boeing and had worked with my coworker at, uh, at InfoWorld, our Seattle bureau chief, uh, was a guy named Jeff Angus. And Jeff had worked at Boeing with this guy. The day after the uh, it happened in the queue, Jeff had bumped into the guy, and the guy said, you'll never believe what happened. I was in this uh, store, and I was buying Bill Gates, and blah, blah, blah. I told the story. And so I heard it the day after it happened, and that was like years before uh, I wrote it in the book. So I had Jeff bumping into his old friend. I had the name of the old friend. I called the old friend. He confirmed the story. This guy has no reason in the world to lie about it. So, uh, you know, the story is absolutely true, and Bill Gates is just lying when he says that it's not true. Oh, oh, one, 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 one more thing. One more thing. There's a funny thing. There was a, there was a biography of Bill Gates called Gates, and uh, written by two reporters up in Seattle. They were at a party, and the subject of Accidental Empires came up. And they were at a party with Jeff Angus. And uh, the, the story of Accidental Empires came up, and they said, oh, that book, we hate that book. And, they, and Jeff said, why do you hate that book? And he says, well, it's full of lies, like that story about Bill Gates and the coupon. And Jeff said, I was the source of that story. <laughs> and they said, so it's true? Yes. So see, And she, he said, yeah, of course it's true. And their response was, because they had also interviewed Jeff for their book, and they said, why didn't you tell us that story? And his reply was, well, you weren't asking those sort of questions. Well, in 1995, you did the uh, classic documentary, Triumph of the Nerds, and I absolutely love that. It's great. It's still one of the best kind of documentaries to watch on those uh, early days and when it was just just emerging and just the roots of everybody. Um, how did you get into it, and um, what did you want to share with that documentary? Well, I had um, written the book, and I had no particular plans beyond that, but um, a TV producer in the UK named John Gao read the book and thought that it would make uh, a good documentary. And he was able to then sell the idea to Channel 4 in the UK. And they commissioned the documentary, and so John contacted me, and a, a deal ensued, a, a co-production with the U.S. PBS network came about. And uh, we ended up making the film, and I hosted it primarily because I would work cheaper than anyone else. You know, I think we were budget-constrained, and I was low-hanging fruit. So I got a career out of it. And I think watching it as well, you could see your passion for it. I mean, you had that, you know, great tongue-in-cheek style. And I love the way you delivered it and all the legends that you spoke to as well. I mean, was it hard kind of tracking everyone down? I mean, I guess you already knew all these people anyway from having worked in the industry already. Was it easy to get them on board and get those interviews done? Yeah, that was uh, maybe another reason for hiring me in that I was, an, you know, a known adversary. I, I could get these people on the phone and I proved that I could get them in the room. And, you know, given that it was a, it was a historical piece, looking back, 
a lot of folks who might not have wanted to talk to me normally had no problem looking back. And, and, and that's in part what allowed the show to live as long as it has because, you know, if I was looking forward, I'd inevitably be wrong or I'd be run over by history. But looking back, if you do the job right, uh, you know, history shouldn't change. So uh, we were able to do that, and we got a lot of folks. In fact, some very unusual people. Uh, we had uh, Paul Allen, and Paul Allen, there are hardly any Paul Allen interviews anywhere. I was going to say, actually, yeah, because um, Paul Allen was, like, key to Microsoft, and um, just seeing him at the start, uh, it was just like, wow, this is a really unique documentary. Yeah, it was. We we were very lucky to get him, and uh, he was very shy. But, you know, once once we got him on camera, it was fine. And that's usually the way it works. Uh, once they start talking about old stories, you know, they and, – and you save the hard questions for last. So uh, that gets them committed to the process. And then once you know you've got enough stuff from them that you're going to use it anyway, then you can afford to take risks and ask questions that are perhaps leading or or controversial. Yeah, then it's the walk-off. You've already got the rest recorded. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you've got to get them to sign the release, though. That's the thing. And, in fact, we had an interesting story about that. For some reason, that wasn't my job. You know, I wasn't the producer, and so, therefore, I didn't have to get these people to sign that piece of paper. But... Uh, we had a variety of producers, some of whom were better than others, and one instance where they forgot to get the person to sign on the spot was Bill Gates. And so after the fact, they sent the release to Microsoft, and it went to the Microsoft legal department, and the legal department said, no, we're not going to sign this. And so, you know, then Bill wasn't going to be in the show. And they and so I pressed, and so finally they uh, – they sent back the release, but they had rewritten it. And the way Microsoft had written the Microsoft legal department, this is, this is an American corporate legal department. This is the way they function. They had rewritten the license that we could use the footage that we shot for this production, but only if Microsoft then owned the production. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was peculiar because they weren't trying to take money away from us, but they were trying to control the, the intellectual property for all time. And not just Bill, but the whole darn thing, and which was ludicrous. And so the, uh, the producers called me up in a panic, and I called Bill and said, you know, we're not going to use you because your people are jerks. And unless you make them change, you know, you're, you're going to be written out of history. And he said – Fax it up to me, I'll sign it, and fax it back. And that's what happened. I'm going to ask Bob, you know, coming from like a UK audience back in uh, the mid-90s, I was a big fan of the, the Amiga, and I remember thinking, oh, they're going to mention the Amiga or, or the Commodore 64 at some point soon. Did it get mentioned at all in Triumph of the Nerds? No. Was that deliberate, or was that just a lack of time? Or You know, it's a funny thing. I didn't have – I knew Chuck Peddle, who was the guy who uh, – did the 6502 that was the processor that was in the Apple II and also in the Commodore 64. And so Chuck had worked, had done the Commodore PET. And, but that was my only connection to Commodore at the time. And, you know, it, it's a funny thing. You're right. It just sort of fell through the cracks there. And it was a huge story. The Commodore 64 was enormous. And 
this fight between Jack Trammell and Irving Gould was a great story, and the fact that Jack was an Auschwitz survivor, and, you know, it I obviously could have gotten a, a great chapter out of that. I don't know why I didn't, uh, except I just didn't have any connection at the time. Now, ironically, uh, one of my best friends now you know, was the chief uh, scientist at both Commodore and Atari, and so, uh, but I didn't know him then, and uh, and that, I guess that was a choice. I was, I was, you couldn't deny the IBM PC, and I was already telling the CPM story and the Apple story, and you know, it was it was a hundred thousand word book contract, and it went to one hundred nine thousand words. So. I guess I, you know, there's that the lady who calls up the calls up the publisher and says, "How long is a novel?" And they say, "Well, what do you mean?" And they say, "Just I just want to know how long is a novel." And so our typical novel is about eighty thousand words. And the lady says, "Oh, thank God, I'm finished." And (laughs) so you know, it's that sort of thing. I I was aiming for a hundred thousand words. I I ran over it by nine thousand, and I said, "I guess I'll stop here." Oh, it must have been an exciting time in the industry. You were like covering Windows 95, the launch. You, uh, when we were uh, doing Triumph of the Nerds, yeah, we shot at the launch uh, that day in, uh, in Redmond. And it was, it was exciting. You know, we saw Jay Leno, and the funny thing was that uh, Windows was already dominant. The idea behind the Windows 95 was that it somehow was going to be bugless and automatic and would do all these wonderful things which it kind of sort of did. I mean, it was a pretty good release, but it wasn't it wasn't what they had led us to believe it would be. But it was fun to be there and they they were certainly making an event out of it and and it was it was cool that we got to cover that. If you're looking back on that, I mean, you know, when you watch part 3 it's been, isn't it when you were at the launch, if you, if you watch that now it like it looks like a like a rock concert or something, you know. I guess there'd never been a launch like that in the software industry until that point. Um, you know, it was done outdoors, and the actual presentations were done in a tent, and that was unusual. Apple had in, had really developed event marketing, but it was always on a stage in an auditorium or a theater, and I think that this was Microsoft attempting to outdo Apple, and part of it was this change of venue, and the rest of it was making it just numerically and physically bigger because, you know, it was outdoors. Well, you interviewed some of the biggest pioneers in the industry, and of course, out of it came the um, the lost Steve Jobs interview as well. That was, I think, only around ten minutes of it were actually used in Times of the Nerds, and obviously, it was like seventy minutes long. The, the full interview they got with Steve. How did that get lost and found again? There is an interesting story here, uh, and that it's still a mystery. We did all we did more than a hundred interviews for Triumph of the Nerds, and all of the interview tapes, what, the uh, Triumph of the Nerds was edited in London. And uh, so all of the tapes were there. The Nerds 2.01, the follow-up of the brief history of the internet, was edited in Portland, Oregon. And so all of the tapes were sent from London to Portland and supposedly never arrived. But the people in Portland were so incompetent that, you know, it could be that they, they arrived and they lost them or that, you know, I don't know what happened, but I'm very dubious of this story. The fact that we had the Jobs tape was just uh, fortuitous. It was just a miracle. And that is that the uh, when the interviews were 
made, they would dub a VHS copy of every interview for the director to look at before going into the edit. And so the director is a guy named Paul Sen, who is still in the UK media. He, he runs Furnace Television in Glasgow. And so Paul had all 100 interviews on VHS, but he only kept one, and that was the Jobs interview. And he just threw the rest away. And so when Steve died, Paul remembered that he kept that tape. So it was in his uh, garage in London at the time, and it had been in the cold garage for 17 years. And VHS tapes that are not rewound for 17 years suffer, especially from heat and cold. And mm -hmm. so he, he dug it out and found it and played it, and it was playable, but it had horrific uh, technical issues, dropouts, weird cross-printing things. It was a mess. And so he, he called me up and said, uh, I've got this tape. You know, you, and, and you might want to, you know, put it on your blog or put it on YouTube or something. And I remembered the interview that we did with Steve, and a very unusual thing happened. First of all, it was, if you've seen the film, you know, it was, it went very well. And it was, a, it was a pretty good interview, and Steve was on that day and very cooperative. And so it, we got this exceptional interview, and we realized it at the time. And when we were done, when we finished the last shot and were breaking down the set, uh, the, the sound man, a guy named Gene Kuhn, said, and, you know, these guys had been at 100 interviews. They were everywhere with me. And Gene said at the end of it, he said, you know, I think we just recorded history. And that was the only interview we had like that where, you know, it was clearly that we had, we had just found gold. And that's why Paul kept the interview. So, so we had this tape, and he wanted me to give it to my readers or my viewers or just offer it to the world. And I thought, you know, I'm greedy. I thought, well, we could make some money from this. And so I had to think of what to do. So I, I called up Mark Cuban. Uh, Mark Cuban has a movie studio, and he has a, a, a cable channel, and he has and he has a production company, and he has all these things. And I said, oh, and he had a, a chain of theaters, movie theaters. So um, he said, well, you know, if it's playable, let's put it in the theater. And so that's what we did. We we ran it for just a couple of weeks in all of his landmark theaters across America, and then took it to uh, home video and. Ultimately, it ended up streaming on Netflix for six years. But the funny thing about it was making it usable was a real technical challenge. We took the, uh, the VHS tape and took it to what was at the time the best post-production house in London and asked them to fix it, and they couldn't. They just didn't have any technology that could fix the horrible artifacts that were showing up. The sound was okay, but the, uh, the, the video had horrible problems. And so I had a friend in a, back in America who uh, ran a company called Motion DSP. And Motion DSP was a tech startup funded by the CIA. And their main business at the time was real-time video processing of predator drone footage being sent by satellite from Pakistan to Las Vegas where the drone pilots actually sit. 
And, wow. uh, and, and, and I said, can you restore my movie by running it through your drone system? And the guy, his name was Sean, uh, said, well, we can try. So, so, so they tried. And then I went in to get the, you know, get the news. And this was like a month later. And they said, well, it didn't actually work because their system was intended to uh, improve the video from airplanes flying in the sky. It's looking at the ground and, it, you know, it's the earth. It's not Steve Jobs' forehead. That, that was the problem. And I said, oh, well, thanks for trying. And they said, no, 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 we fixed it. And they had, they had gone back and written a new application from scratch to restore the movie. And wow. they, yeah, it's amazing. And, they, and, and so what you see is what they did, taking, you know, starting with a really poor VHS tape and then ultimately producing an HD uh, master from it. And uh, and then and they made it work. And the the, the guy uh, who did it, Nikola Bosinovic, was a genius, and he just made it work. And uh, and so that's how that's how we were able to release it. Otherwise, it wasn't it wasn't viewable. Well, there's a lot of films out there at the moment, and uh, a lot of portrayals of kind of computer history, especially with Apple and uh, Steve Jobs. Yeah. And which, which ones do you think have kind of done the best job and uh, represented Steve? Um, in a way that you enjoyed. Well, you know, I had a I had a huge problem with the, the Walter Isaacson book, which I I don't think did a very good job of presenting Steve. I think it was this. I think it presented Steve as Steve wanted to be presented. That's why he chose Walter, and that's why he controlled Walter and who Walter could talk to. But the movie that came from it was, you know, a work of fiction. It wasn't very accurate. Wasn't very useful. Uh, beyond that, the Ashton Kutcher uh, had the look. He looked like Steve, but it wasn't particularly accurate either. So, no, I, I just don't think that there have been very good – there hasn't been a proper theatrical treatment of this. And uh, Did you like Pirates of Silicon Valley? Uh, Pirates of Silicon Valley was originally going to be called Triumph of the Geeks. And we made them change their title. That was a really interesting film because it was based on the book of Fire in the Valley, which pretty much ended the story of that book at the moment where the movie begins. So they bought the rights and they could claim something there, but they, the actual work that they did was pretty much their own reporting. And I'm not saying it was wrong, uh, and it was fine, you know, but it also... Uh, was also a very early story and was trying to do a lot. And I think that uh, there are more intimate stories that are worth telling at greater length. You know, if you look at, if you look at, at uh, the Paul Allen uh, autobiography that came out, where he tells the story of having non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and dying and hearing Gates and Ballmer in the other room plotting to get his stock from him. And I had heard that story from, I knew a woman who had been Paul Allen's girlfriend. Paul Allen always had a spectacular girlfriend. And one of those girlfriends had told me the story. So I had that story, and but no no place to use it. But, you know, it's that, that 
kind of level of detail, someone could pull all that stuff together, I think it'd be an amazing story. Yeah, absolutely. All these stories that haven't really been told to the general Well, yeah, except he wrote a book about it, but, you know, it, yeah. it, it wasn't a bestseller, it wasn't picked up, and I think that story, which was, which really drove him, you know, that's why he didn't go back to Microsoft after his, uh, his cancer went into remission. And he had a bone marrow transplant, and he was cured, and eventually he came back, but it wasn't for 20 years. So he could have gone back to Microsoft, but he didn't because he didn't trust the leadership. Again, back to your Steve Jobs interview, I thought that was really interesting because, I mean, that was a unique moment, I thought, because you had Steve, who at the time, he, he was observing Apple as an outsider at that stage, wasn't he? Do you think that kind of made that interview quite unique compared to all the ones that we've seen? Well, I think a bunch of things made it unique. Uh, but, yeah, it was 90, 1995. It was, Next was in decline, but still running. Uh, we shot it at Next headquarters. And he hadn't gone back to Apple, and he couldn't even imagine going back to Apple. So we, So he was ruthlessly honest at the time about both companies. You know, he... he he, he didn't particularly want to talk about Next because he was already dismissing the effort. So, um, yeah, it was, it, it was an interesting time. We were very lucky to catch him as we did. But when he came back to Apple, when, you know, he got a, a board seat out of it and he saw Gil Emilio, I knew, and I believe I wrote at the time, that there was no way that Steve was going to allow Gil to run things because – Gil, while a perfectly reasonable manager, was hardly a visionary. And he was flailing so, and the company was flailing so, that Steve just, you know, stepped up and, and took it over. And that didn't surprise me in the least. Yeah, just watching that as well, I did kind of notice, I don't know if you kind of got the same vibe as well, but Steve at that time in 95, he seemed quite bitter about Microsoft's success as well. I mean, you know, imagine Windows 95, the big launch was happening around then. Did you kind of get that vibe off him that he was oh, yeah, a picture yeah. of Bill Gates' success? Uh, you know, that, uh, I'll tell you a funny story. I, I was in 98, I pitched an article to Vanity Fair magazine. I was going to do a story about the relationship between Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. And part of it was going to be how they viewed each other. And uh, Graydon Carter, who was the editor of Vanity Fair, thought, that's great. Let's do it. And so I contacted Steve and said, doing this story for Vanity Fair, I'm going to talk, you know, I'll talk to you, I'll talk to Bill, and, you know, I'll talk to a few other people, and we'll, we'll get a great story out of it. Let's do it. And at the time, 98, you know, Apple needed publicity. This was the good thing. And Steve, said, Steve immediately called Graydon Carter up on the phone to make sure it was correct and to try to somehow get control of it. And Graydon stood up to him, which was good. And so uh, so Steve got back to me and he said, I'll do it, but you have to get Bill first. And so I had to then take the project to Bill and get him, you know, get him to sit down for an hour with me and to talk about Steve Jobs. The thing about getting an interview with Bill Gates is that it is it can be difficult, but it always happens. You know, it's just procedures and dates and date books and schedules. And, you know, eventually, if you if you put in the legwork, it'll happen. So it took me about eight weeks to get an interview with Bill. And so I went up to Seattle, and I did the interview with Bill, and it was fun. It was great. He was thrilled to be talking about Steve. 
And so we just talked about Steve, and then I finished, and I went home, and I sent a message to Steve and said, okay, I've got Bill. Now, when can we schedule your interview? And Steve said, I don't think so. So Steve killed the, Steve killed the project by refusing the interview, but he, but he made me jump through hoops. He wasted weeks of my time. He wasted an hour of Bill's time. And this is the kind of sick guy he could be, where he did it just to be an asshole. And Bill, in the interview, I was recording the interview, and in the interview with Bill, he made me promise, or actually Pam Edstrom, the PR lady from Microsoft, made me promise not to use the interview for anything else. And so, and they had it on tape, and they had their tape, and I had my tape, and I wasn't, you know, I was, I was, paralyzed. I couldn't do anything with it. And so I never did do anything with it. I still had the audio tape. And so, uh, you know, that's the way these things worked. So at that point, Steve was back at Apple. Microsoft had made the $150 million investment that saved Apple. And Steve was still doing things to spite Bill. So you're saying, was he bitter? Yes, he was bitter. And, and he explains it in the interview where he he said, you know, he, did, he didn't regret, it wasn't their success, it was that their technology was so crappy. And, you know, and that's in the movie. And, and he was right, you know, it was crappy. When that bailout kind of happened, um, what was the reaction overall from people other than um, Steve Jobs? Well, in the business press and in the general world, the reaction was surprise. But anyone who actually knew the people involved and the issues involved wouldn't see that at all because, frankly, Microsoft had a very successful Apple II and Macintosh software business that was making them money. And so Bill viewed it as two things. One, he, he got to hang with Steve some more because he really liked that. He liked to watch Steve. And um, the other thing was, of course, it, it perpetuated that business, which had been, you know, the relationship between Apple and Microsoft was, was a really interesting one, where Woz did the original uh, integer basic for the Apple II. But when they wanted to have a floating point basic, they, he, wasn't, he wasn't up to doing that. And so they had a turn to Microsoft, which was known as, basic interpreter supplier at the time. And they got the basic from Microsoft for the for the Apple II. And when they did that, and I've got this story from both sides, Microsoft understood that it had Apple at a disadvantage. Apple really needed that basic and they were able to cut a very lucrative deal with Apple. So lucrative in fact that Apple, literally, they used the money that they got from Apple for that basic interpreter. They used it to fund Microsoft's entire expansion outside the United States. They were strictly a domestic company until they got millions and millions from Apple and used that to expand to Europe and Africa and the Middle East. So it, it, it changed Microsoft for the better and made them a much bigger company. And they were gleeful about it. They were gloating about how they had 
sort of taken advantage of, of Apple. And, and they later extended that because they used the contract for the basic was coming up when the Macintosh was coming out and, and they, they used it to get Apple to give them the original license to use the graphical user interface was based on Microsoft's willingness to walk away from the basic deal. And so it was the, it was an Apple II issue that they, they leveraged in order to get, allow Windows 1 to not be in violation of the Apple um, intellectual property. Yeah, it sounded like a lot of kind of infighting and everything at that time in the industry. And I mean, you know, one example of that and someone else who you interviewed in Triumph was um, John Scully, who was, you know, essentially the guy who kicked jobs out of Apple. What was this kind of attitude like? And did he have any regrets from doing that when you spoke to him? Yeah, well, at that point, yes, he did. Because, uh, you know, at this, well, wait a minute. Yeah, 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 he did. Because Scully was out of Apple at that time. We interviewed him in New York at Scully Brothers Investments on Park Avenue. And uh, the thing with Scully was that Steve chose John Scully. It, there were a time when Mike Markula, who was the chairman of Apple and had been their biggest investor, would not allow Steve to be the CEO. He also wouldn't allow Steve to run the Lisa division. So if Steve couldn't be the CEO, he wanted to choose the CEO. And so exactly like he chose his biography author in Walter Isaacson, he chose someone who had no background in computers, the computer industry, so that Steve could control what he knew, what, what uh, Walter knew and what John Scully knew. So Steve uh, seduced John Scully, who had been working at Pepsi, PepsiCo, in New York. And he, he got, he offered him a lot of money and got him to move to California. And, and so he came in as CEO of Apple, knowing nothing about the computer industry, knowing nothing about technology, knowing only about making soft drinks and putting them in bottles and cans. And so, uh, which is the way Steve wanted it, because then Steve thought that Scully would do everything through Steve, and Steve could control, could effectively be the CEO of Apple by controlling Scully. Now, what Steve failed to realize is that PepsiCo in New York was a highly politicized organization where corporate infighting was an art, and Apple was a young company that didn't have that art. And so when ultimately Steve and John came in conflict, John knew how to play that game way better than Steve did and was able to turn the board against Steve. And that is how Steve came to be on the outs. You know, he wasn't fired, but he was placed in an office that was the only office in an entire empty building. And he had no duties. And a week later, he tendered his resignation and sold all 6.9 million Apple shares on the same day, which is not a smart way to get rid of shares. And so um, that's what happened. And then, But then... Scully had won, but then Scully had to deliver. And Scully only knew what Steve had taught him. So this is a problem. And the way that – and Scully looked brilliant for the first year. And he looked brilliant for one important reason, and that was that he immediately canceled all of Steve's pet projects. 
And these pet projects were costing Apple about $200 million a year. And that $200 million a year immediately dropped to the bottom line as profit. So it made Scully look brilliant for increasing the company's profit by a substantial amount. $200 million in profit was a lot for a billion-dollar company in that era. And so, so Scully looked brilliant, but it was based on what he cut, not what he initiated. And so they came out with derivative Apple II products and derivative Macintosh products, and, you know, things got kind of dreary. And then uh, they did the Newton, and that was my friend Larry Kessler's uh, baby, and it was just too early for that technology. It wasn't powerful enough. It wasn't, you know, the market wasn't ready. And so it failed, and at that point, then, Scully's run out of ideas. He has, he has, at this point, named himself Chief Technology Officer as well as CEO. So he's claiming that he's the big brain when he clearly isn't the big brain. And in, in private, he's going around trying to sell the company, and no one will buy it. And so the board that had backed him finally turned on him. Uh, they offered the job to Spindler. It was between Spindler and Gasset. You know, Jean-Louis Gasset, uh, who would run Apple France, and then was brought in to be the technical guy at, at in Cupertino. Uh, Jean-Louis, uh, who has an ego the size of, well, I'd say Montana, it is uh, thought that it was perfectly logical that he would take over the company, certainly not Spindler, the German. And uh, so it was France against Germany. And Germany won, uh, but Spindler, you know, while being a very forceful executive, didn't particularly know any better than anyone else what to do. So he failed, and, 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 and Gasset went off and did B. Remember the, the B computer yes, and the BOS? BOS? And ironically... When Gil Emilio, who, you know, came in after Spindler, was trying to come up with a new operating system for the, uh, the Macintosh, the two candidates were Next Step from Next and the BOS from B. And many people thought, uh, many of my friends thought, that the BOS was superior to Next Step. But... Um, you know, Steve was very persuasive, and he got his deal, and it's $400 million, and, and the rest is history. But even in that case, Steve immediately took his Apple shares and sold every single one of them. He, and said at the time, he's on the Apple board, and he said that he sold all his shares because he didn't have faith in the company management, which is just, was Gil Emilio. He knew what he was doing. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I just want to ask about another pioneer that you um, interviewed in Triumph of the Nerds, and that was Ed Roberts, who, of course, was the, uh, the founder of Altair, one of the earliest microcomputers. What memories have you got of Ed? Well, Ed was uh, Ed ran uh, MITS, and I don't even know what MITS stands for, but they made the Altair, so the name of the company was different from the name of the computer. And, yes. uh, and you know, he, he had been in the Air Force. He was... Uh, uh, an engineer, and he was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and he wanted to make a computer, and they made it. And this was the computer, the Altair 8800, was the computer that uh, Paul Allen saw on the, the cover of whatever computer magazine or whatever magazine it was at the time, and showed Bill Gates, and they realized that they had to get moving, and Bill dropped out of Harvard as a result. So that was that was inspiring, and certainly 
certainly Ed Roberts, uh, you know, was the right was the guy in the right place at the right time. But ironically, the right place is Albuquerque. You know, what was there about Albuquerque? There wasn't an indigenous tech industry at the time. It was just the place where people worked at the White Sands uh, Air Force Base, which was near Albuquerque. So Ed started the company, and uh, it was an incredible success in a, in a way. And there were models that were developed that were very extremely advanced that sort of never came out. And when we interviewed him, Ed had, after he sold MITS to someone, he had decided to have a career change, and he became a medical doctor. He went to medical school and had a practice in the state of Georgia, and that's where we tracked him down. And I hadn't known Ed before, so this was new to me. I mean, I knew the stories, but I didn't know Ed. And we got along famously because we're both pilots, and he was very pragmatic, and, you know, he, he just did what seemed logical at the time. But they were surprised at the, at the success of the Altair, and it was so successful that customers would come and camp in the car park waiting for their computers to be completed so that they could right. take them home. And this new customers from all over America came to Albuquerque and camped in the car park. I guess people still line up for iPhones today, don't they? So uh, not much has changed. <laughs> yeah, so, well, not as much as they did, but I can certainly remember, yeah, lined up around the, around the block. And so, uh, you know, this was, it was obvious that there was a huge unmet demand for this kind of technology. And there wasn't anything you could do with it, particularly. You know, the first out there, 8800, didn't have, uh, it was paper tape. It had, it, it didn't have a keyboard. You had to flip toggles to load in manually the, the boot prom loader. And so, you know, you had to have this sequence memorized or on a piece of paper to run those toggle switches to get it fired up. And I had, at the time, I had in my, in my cellar in Palo Alto, I had a, I had a PDP-8 mini computer that was like that. And I used it to heat my house. And, uh, you know, I'd have a power outage and I had to go down. And when the power would come back on, I'd have to, I'd have to toggle in the, the boot prom loader and, and I, I did it. For, I'd have to do it from memory because it was dark, you know. So I'm in the dark trying to get the. the anyway, it was it, it was another era, and you certainly had to know your hardware in order to even have a chance of running your software. And I know as well in trying for the nerds, you, not only did you get like the guys that founded the industry, but you got the next generation as well. And you interviewed a, a ten-year-old kid called Edwin Stinnen there, who was in a he's a self-confessed computer nerd. Have you thought you had in touch with him, and do you know what he's up to today? Yeah, he's an engineer at SpaceX. Oh, wow. And, and you know, if you, if you think about it, that's perfectly logical. You know, in 95, Edwin was, you know, 9 or 10, and he came into a, a – a, he grew up, he went to Stanford, he got an engineering degree. He could have easily gone into the computer industry, but – there were other technologies that were also interesting and exciting, and he chose to become a rocket scientist. So, you know, makes sense. Well, the follow-up documentary was Nerd 2.0.1, and that uh, focused on the Internet. And uh, it was kind of following up with the team that founded Excite. 
really must have been an exciting time for you to cover the internet. Yeah, I think so. Um, it was, you know, we were able to do the uh, the story of the ARPANET and the people were around. Uh, uh, Bob Taylor, who was the DARPA guy who commissioned the ARPANET that became the Internet, uh, was very helpful and he was available in those days. And he just died last year. So uh, we got to talk to a lot of important people, you know, Dick Surf and Ed Roberts and Steve Roberts, and there are a lot of Roberts in this business. And so, yeah, it was it was great. And we had the Excite Boys as just a prototypical Internet startup of that era. But I knew them. I had helped them already. I helped them get their first customer and their first venture capitalist. So we had a good relationship, and they allowed us in. And Excite could have, you know, they could have been Google. They should have been Google. But... The funny thing about it is that they, they saw themselves as a media company that they got to through search when the Google boys were keenly aware that search itself was the treasure and that they didn't have to get to something else. Excite was reacting to Yahoo's success. And Yahoo didn't particularly have technology initially. They just, you know, made up lists of websites that they liked. They had a manual process, and because Excite felt somehow that they were playing catch-up with Yahoo, they thought that they would be going from a computer search thing to something more hands-on that they labeled as a media company, when in fact that was a gross error and they should have stuck with search. And just to tell you, I told them that. I made it clear to them that they were not paying enough attention to, to search, and they didn't understand me at all. So, good. You know, a lot of people at the time, I remember reading, you know, like the mainstream kind of newspapers and stuff, they'd say, you know, they're kind of talking about the fact that they thought the internet was just a fad at that stage, many of them. And, I mean, even Bill Gates, he wrote the infamous Internet Tidal Wave memo not long before you filmed that documentary. Yeah. When speaking to him, did you kind of get the impression that Bill was playing catch-up at that point? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But the, the funny thing is, is how you, a lot of it has to do with how you pose the questions. Because questions that people are asking in, in that era were things like, how will the Internet do against CompuServe or America Online? And, you know, those are, are, were private networks that no longer exist. And yet the assumption was that the Internet was at a disadvantage and that those proprietary networks had all the power. And so if someone asks the question the right way, you end up, well, you're saying, well, clearly CompuServe will be around because that's the question you ask. You know, the Internet is vulnerable, when in fact the Internet wasn't vulnerable at all. So, you know, in retrospect, we can see things very differently than we saw them at the time. And Microsoft, because Bill thought the Internet was communism, that's how he put it, he wasn't going to have anything to do with it. It just, it seemed to him that the whole point was to get all the information onto CD-ROMs that you could sell to people. And, uh, but in fact, you know, the world moves quickly past that. And once Bill realized that and, and wrote that, uh, that memo, which was, which was based on John Walker's memo, The Last Days of Autodesk. And, uh, John Walker, founder of Autodesk, the original CAD company, 
uh, had retired to Switzerland, believe it or not. And uh, but he was still actively involved with the company, and he wrote these. He was a some kind of a tax refugee in Switzerland, and he he wrote this thing that said, you know, this is how Autodesk can die. And Bill read it and realized that if Autodesk could die, Microsoft could die. And if Microsoft could die, what would kill it? And the only obvious thing that could kill it was the Internet. Well, Bob, it's been a real insight into those classic, you know, pioneering days of the industry. And honestly, I could record another four or five hours with you, all these amazing stories that you've got easily. But obviously so much has happened in, you know, the 25 years since Triumph of the Nerds was on. Would you ever do a part two? Well, you know, we almost did. At the end of the film, it says, see you in 10 years. And we were a month from starting uh, shooting when PBS in America pulled the plug. And I still don't understand why. And, you know, it's doubtful. I have a show coming out next year called uh, Startup America, which is about tech startups. And so I'm still in the business. But to follow up, to pick up from where we left off, I think I think too much time is passed. Well, people can catch up with um, what you're doing now on your website, cringely.com. You keep that regularly up to date? Yeah, cringely.com. Fantastic. Well, Bob, thank you so much for coming on and sharing some new stories with us. It's been a, an absolute pleasure talking to you. My pleasure. Hey there, this is Cole. I want to pop in with a quick programming note for you. Um, the next episode after this one will be available in two weeks, and it will also be the first to be available exclusively on our Patreon at patreon.com slash TV. After that, episodes will continue coming out on Patreon every two weeks on a Sunday, usually in the afternoon. Uh, we hope that you enjoy this introduction to our Elden Ring series, and uh, we thank you for listening. Some of our landings were desperate adventures. We are now prepared to meet the inevitable counterattacks with power and with confidence. Butterfield. My name is Cole Ross. And you're listening to Bonfireside Chat. It is a tarnished favorite. Yeah, and this is the proper beginning of our Elden Ring season. Um, and welcome, everybody. We've waited a long time for this day. Uh, and yeah. boy, are we happy. Uh, this, is, this, this is great. The game is great. I am super excited to be diving into it. Gary, you've been uh, structuring the season. Uh, yeah, yeah, we've mm-hmm. got good times ahead. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a big one. Conservatively, I went I went and kind of looked at this, and this is it's going to be more than this because this ends up giving some short shrift to some areas, and includes no specials. But 32 episodes <laughs> is uh, what I counted out, um, and there will be specials and uh, response episodes and episodes with people on it. I want a chance to talk about the music in this game at some point. Like there's there's a lot uh, of extra stuff, mm-hmm. so we'll buckle up. Um, it is going to be a good long season, but the other good news part is that I, hence then, in order to plan, I beat the game, mm-hmm. and it like didn't shit the bed at the end. Uh, it's wonderful. Controversial. Uh, this is my favorite from game. Yeah. So. 
<laughs> it's 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 real hard. Like I can't fight off the feeling of Dark Souls One when I first got into that. Like that's mm-hmm. a very special thing, but it's not recreatable. I can't hold that against subsequent games. Right. Yeah. Um, let's uh let's talk a little bit about uh, who we are and then kind of uh, shape of the season. Mm-hmm. Um, stuff we have going on. So we, uh, this is, if you're coming to us new, we welcome you. We appreciate you. Um, what we do is we go basically area by area through, through these FromSoft games. And we talk about the encounters and what's in them. Uh, we make some lore guesses and talk about the story of these places, um, as best we can. And, uh, the idea is to be a travel guide. That's how the show started, and it works really well for the lands between as well. Yeah, there's lots um, of traveling yeah. to be done here, lots of different places to see. In this episode, kind of our first big one is going to be an introduction to Elden Ring, really broadly focusing on mechanics and aesthetics before we get into kind of the beat-by-beat beat for the season. Um, we uh, we understand there are people who uh, just jumped on for Elden Ring and just jumped onto the network for the Elden Ring season. Um, we are going to reference previous games uh, in the series and previous seasons uh, because we're people. Mm-hmm. For one, we have memories. Yeah. And then the other bit of it is that uh, Elden Ring, to to me at least, is, mu- is really interesting in the context yeah. of the series. It's made up of a lot of the best and most inventive parts of the different entries, kind of in the Soulsborn uh, kind of uh, kind of uh, series. I don't mm-hmm. know. It's weird to call it a series. It's a it's a loose series, I guess. Um, but uh, yeah, this as something that is made up of all those different parts, but then also is like way way greater than some than other than some of those parts um, is is really interesting. So you know, hopefully that is an alienating kind of the, the unintended goal of that is if this is your first um, from soft game, if it is your first Soulsborne game, you know maybe if you hear about this stuff in its context. That will give you uh, kind of a little bit of orientation if you decide to mm-hmm. dive back and kind of see where Elden Ring came from. Yeah, and it, it will explain where we and other people who are part of the discussion are coming from. Yeah. You know, so if, if we say, like, this is really cool because it didn't used to be this way, uh, you know, the, the part of that sentence is because it didn't used to be this way is important. Yeah. Uh, you know, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. So it explains a lot of perspective um, there. Uh, in terms of kind of spoilers, so we have a couple policies mm-hmm. to lay out as we go. Uh, spoilers are going to be tricky yeah. for this game because there's not uh, – in Dark Souls 1, there was a clear moment. We refer to it colloquially on the network as the Anne Orlando moment for yeah. kind of all games where everything breaks wide open. Uh, this game kind of has a few of those, <laughs> and it's nonlinear. Yeah. So if you're playing along at the pace of the show – uh, which is a major region every two weeks, generally, um, you know, or a portion of it. So all the dungeons they're in, or a legacy dungeon. Um, we eventually will have to start talking about things that you have never heard of. Yeah. The hope is, uh, I think, that at this, pa- this pace of the show, we can go through these areas and really, really drill down. Yeah. And people should be, like, not running out of track. You yeah. Know, uh, for for us. That would be the hope. You know, the, these games kind of exist in two versions when you play them. You know, there is mm-hmm. the first impression where uh, you're kind of delighting in things being strange and alien. 
um, <laughs> and uh, not really knowing exactly how this fits in. Like, this is a, a really evocative person or name or con, you know, concept or what have you. Like, that stuff is there. The other version is once you finally start putting the pieces together and put it into the context. We want to try and honor both of those. Um, yes. And at a certain point, you know, we're going to have to be go from being coy boys about, like, I don't know, the nature of just something thrown thrown in offhandedly, uh, like in the in the opening tutorial, right? You know what the greater will is, you know. Yeah. That is an evocative phrase that you can put into a religious context within the, you know, all these demigods and stuff like that. It also means something. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's yeah, one that comes later, but it's just the example that comes to mind. The, uh, the the process of playing these games involves hearing these names, not really knowing what they are, getting additional context, and then slowly threading that stuff together. Yeah. Uh, we cannot control the pace at which anyone who's listening threads that stuff together. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so it's it's worth knowing, you know, like when we when we first run into, I'm going to throw something out here, like the two fingers yeah. in this fairly early game kind of thing, uh, I want to be able to talk about what those are uh-huh. and, and and think about ideas and stuff. So uh, just laying it out there, if that's not for you, if that bothers you, if you don't want to, if you want this to be strictly like a let's play, yeah, uh, basically, um, just letting you know up front that's not what we're going to do. Yeah. So we're going to use our best judgment. Uh, it'll be kind of, uh, if something is out of bounds, we'll know when we see it. Uh, but we're mm-hmm. going to err towards uh, um, explaining, bringing context and providing clarity. Um, especially because, you know, that's, I don't know, I like doing that. I like explaining things. Yeah. It's the show. Yeah. Uh, the the, uh, the other thing that I want to lay out as a policy thing is, uh, so, in, and I, I mentioned this before uh, online, but I think it's worth mentioning. If uh, So we have a Slack. We have a community. Uh, if you join our Patreon, you can go to the Slack. If you go to Facebook, you can talk to people there. Uh, do not come at people in the, those groups or us with uh, get good nonsense. Yeah. Um, we, it is the official policy of the DuckFeed.tv network that there is no wrong way to play this video game, mm-hmm. uh, and it's no one's business how anyone else plays a video game. Yeah. So we're going to get to bosses, like there's a late game boss that I could not beat and I ended up doing a pretty cheesy method to beat them. <laughs> uh, I don't care yeah. if, uh, if, that is, uh, if that is frustrating to somebody. Um, I don't feel like I robbed myself, uh, and if you do think that, uh, please keep it to yourself. Yeah, it's not useful, and uh, it's it's don't do it. Yeah, um, it will be ignored. So uh, just giving you a heads up there. Yeah, uh, yeah. Kind of if it's in the game, it's in the game. Is you yes. know one side of that, and also nobody gets to gatekeep. There's another side of that. You don't get to make try to make somebody feel shitty uh, for the way that they yeah. decided to approach something, especially if the game gives you the latitude to approach it that way. Yeah, and that doesn't, again, you don't have to agree with that. You could go, you can play this game however you like. Mm-hmm. Uh, just letting you know, uh, you're not going to change us or shame us or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason why you're bringing that up is because that has happened in the past, yep. and it's not uh, an attractive feature of uh, fans of hard games. Yeah. It's uh, it's it's very 2014. <laughs> like, if you still do that, like, it's pretty out of step. Um, you know, I, I would... I would Consider changing your your outlook. Yeah, go back to icing your bros and planking, bud. Yeah, 
Yeah, I'm gonna plank up a kukri and throw it up his boss. Kind of alongside that, just uh, to let people know a couple things about a couple things about us, uh, we're yeah. gonna goof around. Um, also, we're going to be critical. It is not just our job on here to uh, convey what happens. We're not just straight pipes. We're also here to evaluate as well. Um, and yes. we are not always positive. This has been something that's blown back on us in the past. Uh, I just want to set the expectation. You know, while both of us are really positive on this game, it has a, has a real halo for us. Uh, there are parts of it that are BS. And we're going to say that. So if you are looking for just an unadulterated love fest, you're going to find um, a lot of that as we talk about the highs. But uh, concurrent with that is talking about the lows as well. Acknowledging the failures of a work of art is an act of love. Yes. Uh, you know, looking at something and how you think it might be better is an act of, of, of criticism and, and close examination. And it's what yes. we're here to do. And, again, that doesn't have to be what you like, but we're just letting you know that's what we plan to do. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to agree with us or no. anything like that. Just don't be a, don't be a jerk, mm -hmm. you know, about it. Uh, the other thing is uh, we are political people. We live mm -hmm. on this earth. Uh, we have opinions on stuff. Uh, this, we are both, just to set an expectation, pretty left-leaning mm -hmm. uh, people. So it doesn't mean that every episode is going to break down like some kind of millennial McLaughlin group. <laughs> uh, about, about, um, I, nobody listening to this even knows what that is. <laughs> I, the, the, it's a, it's not, I'm a million years old. We are not going to spend like turn into uh, you know uh, Chapo Sun's Fortress partway through this. <laughs> uh, but but we are uh, you know we have opinions and mm -hmm. we're not we, the way that we have decided to carry ourselves in the network is uh, we are not here to silo off parts of ourselves yeah um, for that so we believe in uh, equal rights for everyone like trans men are men trans women are women uh, you know gender is a spectrum um, all of those things mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the spaces that we curate so our Slack and our Facebook are safe spaces uh, for those people. We don't tolerate.